Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Nevers More Podcast, where we talk more about the Nevers. This is episode two. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, how you doing? Doing well, man. How about you? I am doing good, Spencer. We are back for, as promised, on the Nevers More Podcast to talk about episode two. This one's titled Exposure. Now, I specifically told you when we uh, got on to record the podcast and I said, don't tell me anything. Don't tell me a thing. I want to be hit cold with it because we were somewhat famously among our listenership a little bit lukewarm on episode <laughs> one. I would say we mm-hmm. were not uh, the big Nevers cheerleaders uh, here on the Nevers More podcast. No. What did you think of this one? You gave the last one a four and a half. I'm not going to ask you to rate it right now at the jump. I am going to ask you to tell me over or under the rating for episode one. Over. There we go. That's what I was hoping for. I'm the same way. I actually felt really good watching this episode. I was like, wow, okay, they're getting the train a little bit back on the track. Um, I was happier with episode two than I was episode one, for sure. I was happier with it. Uh, I'm starting to understand that the problems I'm going to have with the show are just going to be recurring. and I either need to come to terms with them or continue to complain about them, or both. We'll see. Um, Because you don't have to keep watching. You don't have a choice on that one. You have a gun to my head. Um, But... (laughs) It is, I'm pretty sure the things that most know me about the show are just going to continue to be there, but I like this episode better because I like the kind of character interactions they spend a little bit more time on. Now we kept on returning to them at various times. And those really got me into the episode more than the last one did, which was so quickly cutting between different points. So, did I like everything? No. Is it great? Still probably not. Is it noticeably improved and gives me hope for the future? Yes. That's kind of where I landed with episode two. Uh, so, uh, here on the Nevers More Podcast, we have a bit of a format. We go through a recap. I lead the recap. Then we do best line of the episode. I alone am in for a best line of the episode. Spencer will supply with nominations, of course, but I will award best line of the episode. And then we will go through best character arcs, or at least our favorite character arcs. And then we will award the booby prize, which is which character is dead last for the week. In, the most uh, annoying in us level present. of interest. <laughs> last week, I could not wait to award it to Hugo Swain fast enough. We will see who gets the Boopy Prize this week. But before we jump into that, a little bit of housekeeping. First off, um, we're a bit, uh, we have some gratitude here to to share with the listeners. We had a, a big response for episode one of the Neversmore podcast. A Thanks, lot of Drake. listeners out there, a lot of new people finding us. Um, you know, Spencer and I have been doing, we've been doing this on a various number of podcast feeds for a while. We have the, the GOT, uh, it's G-O-T, got questions clever right uh podcast feed that we did where we reviewed game of thrones we uh have another podcast feed called mangum talks tv um so yeah we're we've done a number of podcasts for the mangum talks podcast channel but this is a obviously a brand new one and we have a lot of new listeners who are finding the podcast so first off thank you all for listening we really appreciate you being here and and jumping into this show which you know we don't have books. We don't have source material. We're all new. We're, we're new right here with you folks. We're, we're all in this Holding together. Your hand. We're all learning uh, about this show and this world on the fly. But anyway, thank you for, for joining. Thank you for listening. If you are listening, if you are enjoying it, make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to and rate and review us. That stuff actually goes a long way to get us higher in search results, to get more people listening, and hopefully we can grow the number of people listening to this podcast so we can continue to enjoy the Nevers or not enjoy the Nevers on a week-by-week basis. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, we're going to watch it and we're going to talk about it with you. We will continue um, to talk about the Nevers in what form and what fashion stands to be seen. Hopefully we like it. If we don't like it, 
we will enjoy not liking it, if that makes yes. any sense. And if you have any feedback for us, if there are things you like, don't like about the show that you'd like to share with us, if you'd like to just uh, throw some questions to us that we may uh, talk about on the podcast, go to mangumtalks.com. That's mangumtalks.com. The upper right-hand corner, there's a little button called Contact Us. Click that and type anything you want uh, for us to know. Uh, that could be just feedback or it could just be some questions or ideas for segments. Whatever you got. Go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us. I promise you, I read every one. I promise you, uh, Spencer does not. <laughs> <laughs> but Lee tells me about them. I promise you, I will read every one. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, we'll have to cur- curate them for Spencer. Um, uh, and we, we are in no way sensitive to you know negative content, too. We'd love to hear that as well. I recently had a judge call me a waste of physical space, so I thrive on that kind of thing. So don't don't hesitate to criticize us where you think we deserve it. Sure, yeah. If, if there's anything you think we can improve upon, let us know that. But anyway, we would love to hear from you as we all uh, go down this road of figuring out this world, of, of jumping into the nevers together. We are, like I mentioned on episode two, this one titled exposure i can already tell we're gonna get some very vague episode names oh yeah i don't like that i like i like Mm -hmm. the episode names that tell me something i remember the glory days of game of thrones like where we would get like reigns of castamere and i was like whoop know what that means (laughs) when when they would publish the name of the episode list you and i would spend like an hour just going through them saying okay this one's named this where do we think the plot's going with that this one's named this this probably means this is going to happen that was fun these yeah, they're just meant to be purposely vague and have very little relation back to what's happening. Yeah, so we're not going to get any of that. Um, so we did a little bit of housekeeping on the podcast. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining, listening to us. Thank you for joining. Let's do a little podcast about, or a, a little um, housekeeping about the show uh, before we get going. I would like to just point out that by all accounts, it's been a very successful uh, early run of the show. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I think it was supposed to debut on HBO last year. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pandemic happened. Joss Whedon happened. <laughs> a lot of stuff happened, and they 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 pushed it all the way to this year. They're doing a broken up season, so we're getting six episodes now. Six which, episodes later, which is so, which is kind of weird for an HBO show. I mean, I'm used to that for like anime of having like you know a spring and a fall or a winter season, but doing this for a mainstream HBO show, I'm not really used to that. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's definitely weird that they're doing that. Um, I'm not sure what the reasons are for going ahead with six now and and six later, but whatever the case may be, by all accounts, it was pretty successful because uh, HBO had a press release after episode one where they explained that this was the most popular debut in HBO Max history. Now you might say, oh my gosh, most popular debut in HBO history. No, no, no. HBO Max history. That's a new app, my friends. It used to be HBO Go, HBO Now. But it's still like a year and a half old. And there was still some stuff like The Undoing with like Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman that debuted on HBO Max. So it's a big deal that it's the most popular debut in HBO Max history. I think what it tells us though, Spencer, is we're going to definitely get the back half of season one and they might go ahead and green light season two. That's what I'm thinking. That this, these early reviews um, and, and the early ratings tell us. A lot will matter of whether it can sustain itself. We're at a, a pretty impressive uh, initial re, initial watchers. HBO was very proud of that and bragging up a storm. Whether that keeps going through this first half and whether they return for the second half stands to be seen. But if those numbers hold, 
good for them. I'll be curious to see be curious to see how quickly they greenlight another season. Hell yeah. Okay. You ready to jump in the recap? Damn straight. All right. We start with the recap. We start with two women talking about how the touched her everywhere. It's kind of like it was like Joss Whedon mixed with Aaron Sorkin, you know, like the sort of walk and talk and let's put in a little bit of the plot while we're walking and we're talking. That's what we were getting right here at the start of, of the se- of the episode. I, I was going to add how um, touched her everywhere. Uh, one of them thinks the newspapers are maybe over hyping it. Uh, these women seem to work in a department store of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then yep. the boss, I caught his name. His name, um, nice old old man from from London, name Mister Oldenham. <laughs> Indeed, uh, which I have written uh, in my notes as creepy sexual harassment boss. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably a lot of uh, writers have a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of source material there. Mm. Um, they start talking to one of the ladies, Miss Cassini. And he's commenting about how her work gloves are stained. They're not dirty. They're just stained. She, uh, he explains that you're only given the first pair for free. She's got a pie or second pair. Um, then he tells her to lay off the beef and pudding and get super close to her before some um, some customer cuts them off. And the customer comes in and says, well, they're trying to figure out something to wear because the city's in mourning after the massacre. I assumed that the massacre they were talking about, and this is not the only time they reference a massacre. They're talking about like what happened at the opera, right? Gotta be, yeah. All right, yeah, that was my thought too. They're talking about that. So the, because the London is in mourning for the massacre that happened at the at the opera that our girl Amalia True was there for. So, Mr. Odenheim, go ahead. Because like we said last episode, at least like a dozen people, high members, high members of society, were just brutally murdered with a freaking chain gun in an open theater. There's no way the ripples of that wouldn't just keep going through London for months or years to come, as we see several times talked about in this episode. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I get the impression that this is maybe a couple weeks after. I don't think I, this is a long time afterwards. May only even be a couple days, based on one of the descriptions we hear uh, later on, but we'll get to that. Okay, so it's, yeah, definitely not a lot of time afterwards. Mr. Odenheim asks Miss Cassini to pass her a hat with feathers, and as she does, she puts a little magic on it, puts a little English on it, Spencer, and what happens? The, um, the darn hat just starts floating. It appears to be that her touch is Wingardium Leviosa. Um, because... Ooh, nice shout out. I'm, I'm here, I'm here for it. It seems to be that if she wishes, and sometimes when she doesn't wish, yeah, she can kind of instill a certain amount of floating characteristic in various objects around her, seemingly regardless for how much they weigh. So I'm always trying to figure out like the parameters of the magic, right? So it seems mm-hmm. like some, either if she gets excited or if she means to, there's some, tr- it does not everything she touches, obviously, but there's some trigger yeah. where... Whatever it is will have a certain amount of uh, levitating property. It does seem as though it's not like a a cognitive connection, right? She's not like like holding her no. mental thumb on the scale to keep this darn, darn thing going. It's just a certain amount goes on it, and then she goes about her business, and then eventually the thing falls down later. And it doesn't also doesn't seem like she really controls them once they're in the air to any degree either. Like she doesn't like say lift them up in the air and then set them on a path and just let them go. It's just now a floating object that's just kind of randomly bumping around a room until it falls and crushes the display case kind of thing. Yeah, which we see. Um, she eventually touches a stuffed polar bear and the bear floats for a while before crashing down across everything. Because every department store has to have a giant stuffed polar bear on the middle of their display floor. But I, I think this character, Cassini, 
I'm not, I don't know if her character is actually going to be really important, but I do think that this scene is meant to convey a couple things to us. The first is people are talking about the touched and they're gossiping about it. And it's very much a us versus them thing. And whenever something happens that makes it very apparent that you are touched, which could be a surprise to you, by the way, you may not even know, like with Cassini, I'm not sure she knew this before. And if she did, um, we may have a little bit of uh, evidence that she did before, but you know, it's pretty clear that people are kind of learning this stuff on the fly, right? And when it when it becomes apparent that you are touched, it's a game changer for a lot of people. And so like in this store, she's starting to hear like, oh gosh, she's afflicted. Oh gosh, she's touched. And it's like traumatic. She starts running out of the store um, because it's like, I guess her her affliction is now on full display. She can't hide it anymore. Yes. Yeah, she was hiding it. There's a couple aspects of the scene that confuse me a little bit. But one thing makes perfect sense about the two people we follow in, the two department store girls, appear to be recent Italian immigrants. They're speaking Italian with each other. They clearly both have an accent. They're working that kind of classic job of trying to find your own feet in society kind of thing. So that kind of fits into what we've heard about the people who are touched previously, is that they're primarily women and they're primarily people that are outside of the upper echelons of society. So... This Miss, Miss Elisabetta Cassini appears to be exactly on point for that. One of the things that confused me a little bit, though, is how everybody else in the room reacted. It doesn't surprise me that everybody kind of freaked out a bit, particularly with recent news. But they yelled, stop her. And a lot of people then tried to physically restrain her. Which caught me as a little weird, because we've not really been given anything to indicate that being touched is illegal. We actually have somebody straight up say later that it isn't a crime to be touched or, or do business with the touched. So what were people trying to do here? Was this just kind of level of hysteria after the massacre kind of thing of where they're just trying to detain her because all touched are possibly under suspicion? Or was it possibly even something worse? My, I took it to mean, and I think it's left purposely ambiguous, right? But I took it to mean um, they were worried she was just going to raise... She was just going to screw. She was just going to mess things up, right? She was. She did. She, yeah, she was like a menace and a danger at that point. And it's like, oh God, we have to control her, otherwise, God knows what's going to happen. She might light this whole place on fire. It, admittedly, she inflicted an impressive amount of property destruction in a way that could have caused some, you know, serious damage or casualties as she was running out of the place. She was doing it because she didn't know what they were about to do, and she was under threat. But. Her abilities could potentially cause a fair amount of harm, particularly if, if we're right that she doesn't have much control of them once objects start floating. Yeah, and I'm just going to say, like, for a company that only gives you one pair of the gloves, might not want to go back to that that job. Uh, I think they're going to keep the they're going to keep the till, Spencer. They're gonna they're gonna well, have a, a bill for her when she steps foot back on that property. Uh, particularly with that boss that was basically saying that you know I could help you out with the gloves if you go on a date with me or worse. Probably not a job you want to stick with unless you have no better choice, which, sadly, as a recent Italian immigrant in, you know, late Victorian London, may well be the case. She doesn't have many other options to pick from. No, but it's clear that Cassini is touched. She's got this I-can-make-things-levitate um, ability, and she's now kind of on the run and seems very scared, and she takes off. And uh, do we get, does she pull out the, um, she, she does she pull out the, the flyer that it looks to me like this is Amalia True's image on the flyer, right? It does. It looks like this, it, it, the flyer even says something along the lines of safe harbor for those who are touched by fear. And it's got a very prominent picture of Amalia on the cover. So this is clearly something that the orphanage is publicly releasing to get out there in the world so that people that are in her situation know that they have a place of refuge, a safe haven, in the event that events very much like what she's going through occur. 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense, though, that they, I mean, if people Absolutely. are just all over the place, you know, discovering that they have been touched, discovering that they have these powers, and then immediately being ostracized from society, it would make sense that they would have this big, like, catch-all net, like, hey, if this happens to you, come to us. And on that point, just to make sure we're on the same page for this, it appeared to be to me that she was very conscious of the fact that she had powers, that this was not a surprise to her. She seemed to be consciously kind of controlling them as she was running out of the store, and it seemed like she knew that she'd messed up when the hat started floating, rather than it being a surprise to her. Yeah, you know, I was, so I was doing the thing where I was trying to say, like, okay, what does this scene tell us? And and in doing that, I, I kind of screwed up the scene itself, because it is clear that she knew she was afflicted for a couple of reasons. One is because then she, as soon as the cat was out of the bag, she all of a sudden control over it. And then two, she happened to have this flyer in her pocket, right? So yeah. it was pretty clear that she did know. The, the point I was trying to make when I, I kind of got that sideways was I was just trying to say that if you do, you are one of these people that just like, you're just stumbling about your day and bam, all of a sudden you figure out you're touched mm-hmm. and you didn't know it before. Your life is going to change dramatically in this society. And this is the representation that we're getting, right? And this comes up later with our homeboy Augustus, too. Like, he's not, he's not super uh, loose-lipped uh, on, his, on, his, on his affliction, Spencer, which I cannot wait to talk to you about. Oh, my God. We so are going to have so much fun with that one <laughs> later on. We're going to get to that. But for right now, it's, import- it's an important comparison you draw there between Augustus's kind of means of being able to deal with it versus this um, Miss Cassini is that Augustus is in such a luxury kind of privileged position, he's able to hide it. Yep. He's able to, you know, bury it, to mask it away between many layers of wealth and wealth and respectability. Miss Cassini, moment anything like this comes out, she can't cover this. She doesn't have an option of covering this. She can't retreat into her money for a while until people forget. If it comes out the way this does, she's kind of done. And so she needs a place like this to be able to run to, because otherwise, where else could she go in a society that seems for reason or not, remarkably prejudiced right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, anyway, enough with that scene. We cut to a police raid. It looks like Frank Mundy, don't call him Frankie. Frank, don't call me Frankie Mundy, is leading. They come rushing into the orphanage. We get a great scene of Penance. Your girl, Penance, if you weren't with us on uh, the first episode of the Neversmore podcast. Spencer, uh, throwing Penance right under the bus, backing up, running back over again, Sam Penance. Least favorite character arc I- for him. I didn't throw I didn't throw her under the bus. I threw her underneath the three-wheeled electric buggy. Get it right. The little Tesla that she's rocking? Yes. Uh, anyway, Spencer did, did go out on a limb and say that Penance is least favorite character. We'll address if that holds after this episode. But for now, Penance is on an exercise bike. She's, uh, I like her life, man. She's got a Tesla. She's got a Peloton. She's killing it. <laughs> Living the dream. Living the dream. Man, Penance has got it going. And she hears someone yell, check the workshop, obviously, like a, an outsider, right? And she just very casually, as if this has happened a million times, presses the button, looks to completely shut the workshop down. Please don't get into the workshop. No, but otherwise they get pretty much anywhere, including a hell of a lot of personal effect drawers. Yeah, cut to Primrose, who's complaining to Lucy Best. The char- this that character's name, Lucy Best, kind of the older older lady, kind of takes care of a lot of folks um, in the orphanage. Uh, yeah. I thought she was like a housekeeper. I thought she was like, you know, the, the groundswoman who managed the, the who managed the place. Appears to be she's also, as we find out later in this episode, also one of the touched. But she may she, also still be the runner of the place when other people is, are there. She is, but she's, I think she's kind of assumed this sort of like informal, like matriarch role. Yeah. Um, and she's just, so Plymrose complaining to Lucy, the police were looking through her underwear. 
Uh, Mundy then meets Amalia and explains uh, they have a warrant to search the premises. It does appear this is the first time that um, Frank, Mundy, and Amalia have met. So we, we do get a first meeting here between these two characters. Though Frank is not unknown to other people in the room, at least not by at least by reputation. I know, that's not a good look, right? Mundy introduces himself. Lucy inquires if he's the Frank Mundy who likes to knock suspects around. Yeah. It, it, it's a rough start, though. I love his little rejoinder there. It's like, you're the one that likes knocking suspects around, even though they're as innocent as Christmas. Fun way of putting that. What do they do to set you off? They call me Frankie. Great response on his part. <laughs> Frank, don't call me Frankie Mundy in the house. When Mundy um, <laughs> says he will need the workshop opened up, Amalia then, oh my God, I, I I paused it and I was like wishing we were watching this together. For folks who don't know, uh, Spencer is an actual, legit, bona fide, honest to God lawyer. And I wanted to, I could not wait to talk to you and say, how happy are you with your girl Amalia True? She read the warrant, Spencer. Before you let them in the door, <laughs> ask to read the warrant, ask for identification. She is going down the checklist. She is doing great. And she notices a clear discrepancy on the scope of their investigation. That They're asking to investigate all of the outbuildings, all of the property that they own, including the workshop. But as she wisely notes, sorry, you only have permission under the warrant to investigate this particular building. Also, can we go talk over here? It's... It's so funny, the trope in media, right? It, uh, when you get the, do you have a warrant? Yes, it's right here. And then they wave a piece of paper and then they go. Don't look. And then the person, the, you know, the person who either is on the property or on the property or whatever, then just falls apart and goes, oh God, they have a warrant. And then they just like, boom, you can just do whatever you want. Our girl Amalia, shout out to the Nevers for breaking that trope and being like, nope, you know what? I'm going to read the warrant. <laughs> yeah, the warrant has to have accurate information. If it doesn't list your address right, if it doesn't list your name right, if it doesn't have an authorizing judge or signature, any of these can read this warrant a just a piece of paper. Look at the damn things. I love that she got in that. It starts, probably my favorite aspect of this episode is the kind of banter and working off each other that Amalia and Frank develop over the course of this. I really liked that, and it starts off on a good point here. I will say that one of the things about this show that I think they're going to struggle with is they, they clearly are trying to write this at least in part as it, like as people might have spoken in like 1899. <laughs> they're not trying that hard. Well, but occasionally, right? Because yeah. like Amalia goes, uh, do you want to speak apart? Mm -hmm. That's what he says. That And I, I had to like, be like what the hell and then i, I pieced it together <laughs> speak apart means speak alone like we would right. say do you want can we can we speak in private right can we speak apart from everyone else that's here yeah but the british have a way of shutting sentences off like midway they just stop like can we speak apart like, apart what like finish the sentence? <laughs> <laughs> amalia english is inherently a language that requires prior exposure it does not accommodate you well unless you already know how it works Amalia deduces that Mundy is looking for Malady, but because he's there, he's probably not very close to finding her. Mundy starts to recount the, Good read. the opera, says Malady escaped, as did Amalia. Uh, so it's kind of like he's almost like trying to give her like 25% that he's investigating her too, which I think is a bluff. I don't think what? this is true. I, I think and I'm not quite sure why he's engaging in this tactic. Well, it's interesting because she's a perfectly legitimate person to interview after what happened. She jumped on stage and chased the suspect, according to eyewitness accounts. Obviously, they want to speak with her, and obviously, given this is the you know center location for the for the um, 
for the touched in the city of London, this would be a place that they'd want to investigate and check out. Just for public relations purposes to calm the uh, scared public out there. But what reason Frank is there starts to increasingly reveal itself over the course of this conversation. And it's really neither of those things. Amalia says she fought and lost, didn't feel much like talking about it. Mundy asks, do you often engage in public violence? And is that Penance's music? It's mm-hmm. your least favorite character who really shouldn't be complaining about a corset. Penance comes in off the top rope, says, um, would you give over violence? This is another one of those turns of phrase I didn't quite understand. Would you give over I think what she says, would you prefer vi-? I'm not quite sure what she means by that, but she says, would you give over violence? Then she drops in. She put her life at risk to save dozens of others. She handed you one of Malady's gang. The great big rifleman. I assume this is the guy who had the rifle on his arm. This is chain gun dude, yeah. Yeah, that guy got caught, apparently. So Mundy does have that guy. So, But good points by your by your homegirl, Penance, there. Mm-hmm. Mundy claims um, that she went with Malady out of the building, she being Amalia. Um, and I've got a witness. Would that be the man with his cock out? Probably. <laughs> so, yeah, they're talking about, uh, my, my guy, Hugo, there, um, mm-hmm. who has apparently been working with Mundy. Mundy asks about Mary. Malady explains... Inspector, she is touched, but I can assure you she's nothing like me. She's wonderful. Penance having none of it. How are you not wonderful? I love that Penance just always takes up for Molly in these little scenes. I'm enjoying that. One, one thing that's going to become really big and important over the course of this episode that I really didn't pick up on last time. Just the emotional effect of what Mary's abilities have on people. It seems almost like you're feeling the touch of God based on what descriptions they have. It instills in you hope. It instills in you a sense that there is goodness in the world. And people repeatedly talk about just the um, effect it has on you after after you feel you know, the connection with her from her singing. Well, only I, certain people. Only, only the people that are actually connected by it. Only I didn't people. really pick up on that at all last episode. They kind of vaguely said at the end that, oh, her ability will change everything and it'll bring us all together, which I didn't really understand at the time. But this episode, they're really emphasizing just what a f- an effect this has on a person and, their, and, and, and uh, how they uh, feel about the world after it touches them. Well, it kind of made sense, right? Because when she starts singing, all of the touched people are just like stopped in their tracks right. and they're, they're all her- like, and then later on, um, at this point, you were probably already ignoring what she says, but Penance was saying, um, <laughs> Shut she, <up>. was, <laughs> she was saying, uh, what was that quote mm. where she said, you know, Mary's song reaching down into me, you know, or something like that, you know, yeah. like she was saying that it like touched her soul or something. So I don't know. But clearly, I mean, and we find out more about this later, but clearly Mary has this ability to, to sing and it, and it does something all it's like a religious experience for touching it, people. It's, it's a properly enrapturing kind of effect. It very much is a siren song in terms of what they go through and even how they feel about about yeah. it afterwards that was a really good that was a really good reference because i think that that's going to probably hold tight i think as yeah. we go through with this mary character amalia explains they are looking for mary and vince mundy to work with them quote often our men will find malady he doesn't like this idea of working with amalia um amalia fires back in primrose drawers <laughs> pretty funny um mundy with a lot of earnestness um ask what mary's turn is myrtle then announces lavinia who comes in throwing some bows and knocking people out. She literally um, rolls in. Yeah. Strong, really strong. Mary, like, like Lady Olena vibes here from, Oh yeah. From Lavinia, how she just kind of storms in sharp tongue, older lady, you know, just, just kind of verbally just throwing shade on everybody. I- and apparently with pretty some pretty important political connections, too. Because based on what she says, she essentially didn't in run around the judge going straight to the chief of police to therefore get the warrant kind of pulled. 
Yeah, that's what she did. She came in. She says, ladies, do not speak another word. This loathsome charade is over. Uh, she went above the judge's head. She says the judge is in trouble, but tells Mundy, don't worry about it. Your men, your men won't bear the brunt. But the judge, she's saying the judge is apparently in trouble, which I think is, uh, it does speak to just how upper crust and just how, how much influence Lavinia Bidlow has. Mm-hmm. And Mundy kind of just, upon seeing this, just kind of walks out of the room with his tail between his legs. This was enough to end the investigation in its tracks. Like you said, really shows a level of power and influence out of Lavinia I wasn't expecting. I was kind of expecting her to be a kind of like a remote member of the gentry that's not really in high civil society. But this episode really hammers home that, no, 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 she's a person of importance and influence and, you know, standing. I'm going to agree. Oh, the standing. Oh, gosh. Look at you, Spencer. Thank you. I try. <laughs> uh, man, blew me back a little bit there. I'm going to agree with you. I did not get the impression that Lavinia, Lavinia was like a political power player in episode one. Uh, she clearly is. Um, she explains Absolutely. that three people who were touched um, declared... This is after uh, Mundy leaves. She's mm-hmm. now talking to Amalia and... And Penance she says that the three people who were touched declared war on society. Now everyone who touched is now a, subs- a suspect. They should know that. Then they kick around who is actually behind the search. Lavinia explains that Mundy couldn't have authorized it himself, but apparently the superintendent had pressure. But they wouldn't tell Lavinia who did it. But they have a theory. Amalia, speaking for all of us, every <laughs> everybody watching the show, throws out Lord Masson. Mm-hmm. Um, Amalia admits that she... This, I thought this was kind of a, a telling moment from Amalia here. She says, basically says that when she was verbally sparring with Lord Masson at the opera, she didn't quite know what a big deal he was. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I didn't quite know how big a deal he was. And then she says he's apparently the voice of the conservative parliament, and he's anti just about every damn thing you could be anti of. And we get a really fascinating response from Lavinia with respect to that, where she says something along the lines of that Gilbert Bass and I agree on almost nothing. It is the bedrock of our friendship. So the two of them have a relationship that's been going on a while that appears to be at least civil, which again tells us that Lavinia is a person of stand... I'm going to stop saying that. She's a person of importance in society. Offensive. Um, No, I think that this is supposed to be what? This is supposed to be what? Like, um, I don't know. Who, who was that? Who was that super conservative guy from South Carolina who was the senator for a hundred eight eons? Um, who was the big racist old guy? Uh, Strom Thurmond. Stry- this is Strom Thurmond, Ted Kennedy car- territory. I think yeah. that's what they're trying to set up, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to give you that impression of these are two big, powerful political actors. They're on completely other sides of of ideology. But they have this this respect and they get along and they make it work. And I think that's what we're trying to, that we're supposed to believe. I very much agree. A good read on the situation. Uh, Lavinia then says she's actually there for Penance. Um, there is some high society function she wants her to attend. Penance questions the panic. In uh, a great quote here from Lavinia. It's society. Doing nothing is how we panic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a very Lady Olena line there. Because it's like, it's a it's a quick retort, but then it's also self-effacing, but then critical of the social class that she's in. It's, it's rounding the basis. Lavinia explains that she'll need to show off her turns. Explains this is a bit of a PR move. Uh, or no, it seems like this is a bit of a PR move from Lavinia. So here's my, my take on, on what she's asking her to do here. Mm-hmm. Basically, look, all hell broke loose the other night at the opera, and like it or lump it, Malady is touched, and society, who not all the non-touched people, are throwing her in with your lot, 
And so we got to do a little good PR here to show people that yep. not everybody who's touched is touched in the way that malady is touched, right? Or even like bonfire is touched. Some of the some of your your turns are not quite so bad. So what we're gonna do is um, you're gonna be like the opening act, right? Before mm-hmm. um, you know, before like Gilbert Godfrey comes on and does like a soft forty five, <laughs> you're gonna come out, you know, with the with the the shrimp puffs and the crab cakes, and you're gonna do. A little bit of uh, whatever your turn is for everybody, shuck and jive, and then they're all going to leave feeling a little bit better about the afflicted, right? Right. It, it makes absolute sense from a strategic standpoint that presently the only impression that the average person has of the, of the touched, of the afflicted, is malady. That's the only person in the news in this horrible incident that everybody's talking about, and of course we'll be talking about for years to come. They need to get out ahead of this. They need to provide an, an alternative viewpoint with respect to how the touched are and how the touched can be. They're not all. They're not all murderers. They're not all madmen. They're not all a threat to society. They are all perfectly functional people with fascinating abilities that can make for very pleasant pre-dinner conversation, and that's great. And I think it's. I, I think Miss True is very much on the same page that this is a good idea to do. Penance is a little bit more mixed on it because it has a certain element of being. Let me cart out my trained puppies to do tricks for the crowd and for the gentry kind of thing. Well, I thought that the average viewer was going to be somewhat offended by this suggestion here from Lavinia that I thought that's what like when I'm just like putting on my like average Joe hat that's what I thought people were going the reaction we were going to get now you know me you know I am when it comes to politics if if nothing else I try to be eminently practical and I my own personal biases here I am like somewhat sympathetic to Lavinia's position here I'm like look I- I'm with you. I think it's not a bad idea. I understand it sucks that you have to be prated about and, you know, show off this thing that you have, you know, as if you're some sort of trained puppet. But, like, you know what? It's actually not a terrible idea. That was my thought going into it. It is absolutely not a terrible idea. And it's an important part of exposing people to the idea of the touched as people, rather than just things you read about the paper or just little horror stories that you tell your kids about. Once you actually meet a person, you view them as a person and can associate them in that way. And it can also be like almost like a cultural exposure kind of event, like you know going to an expo in a different nation and learning about them in that kind of way. The issue is, and this is a bit of a theme that goes through all this episode, is how Lavinia goes about it. She doesn't make it that the touch... The, the touched that are under her ward are controlling the event and setting up how it really occurs and meeting people on their own terms and exposing them in their own preferences and ways. No, no. She's demanding that three of them are brought to her house to meet her friends how her friends want. And it's... While we go into this episode with a very positive view of Lavinia, it does suggest to a certain degree that she is still coming into the situation as kind of the upper crust doing charity work, that may not fully be in the mindset or necessarily understand the people that she's sworn to protect and care for. Necessarily uh, what they want and need. Uh, sworn to... Uh, I think this was our first little teeny inclination might be more to Lavinia. And then we get the, you know... We get more we get later. the Darth Vader reveal at the end of the episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But um, this, like you said... This, this is our the, first little hint to it. This was our first little turn that there was a there was a suggestion here that Lavinia was a more complex character than just being you know the saintly Xavier figure that she'd been previously painted as. 
our first little turn, what she's standing for. Spencer, you're you're just crushing it tonight. You're just here, all over the place you. with the phrases. Cut to some sort of men's club with men drinking brandy and cigars. And oh, Jon Royce is there. Still, uh, Jon Royce, the actor from Game of Thrones. Uh, that's not his name. That's the character he played in Game of Thrones. Still... This is a multiple episode contract for this oh, actor, yeah. so I'm very pleased with that. This man may get more screen time this season than he ultimately got in Game of Thrones. He's talking about the military patrolling the city. Masson has a great quote here. I'm exhausted by all the ways that will go, that should go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, great point. I mean, you don't. You, that has to be the absolute last oh. possible <laughs> option. You, I mean, you don't. You don't default martial law. You don't just go with that as Plan A. That's clearly many plans need to fail before you think martial law is your best option of how to go forward. For sure. He explains that Malady's done them a favor, though. And this, Spencer, going back to our <laughs> coverage of episode one, you had a theory that potentially Malady could be a false flag, that Malady could not even be like what we, that the, she could be some sort of construct to turn society against yeah. the afflicted. And Masson's comments here. Give a little teeny credence to that theory. They do ever so briefly before I feel that the end just puts the utter kibosh in that theory, but maybe it's still alive. But this scene gave me hope that there may have been that kind of thing going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that, uh, anyway, he says that, that they've done him a favor, turned the sentiment against the touch. Then the guy sits down, tells Lord Mass, and folks are with them. They know they're under attack. Jan Royce explains that the House will convene a special committee on touched, and I love this quote, which after careful vetting will be us, <laughs> the committee. Um, the Prime Ministers are going to move on the, mo- the Prime Minister is going to move on the motion himself to, to form this committee. And I love that Masson is utterly sanguine to the idea of this was just rank bribery that made this happen. Because he even directly asks, how many nephews did we have to hire to make that occur? Or something like that. I know. And then like Jan Royce goes, like he like laughs as if it was a joke and then just settles into, well, well it was two. <laughs> so yeah, rampant corruption here. Mm-hmm. Um, Jan Royce asks if Amalia is behind their women problem. And Masson says he doesn't know, but she's not a fool and she's not a fucking baker. Um, is that like, here, so question for you on that line? Cause the line confused me. Is that just, just surface level sexism? Is that all it is? Like Baker woman, Baker? Like I wasn't sure. I was I a little confused to, by the line. I, I wanted to go back and read the newspaper article. Cause I felt like he was reading the newspaper article and there was an entry in there that like said that she was a Baker is like her cover story or something. Um, and I, th- I felt like he was probably responding to the newspaper article, but I couldn't read it. So I'll need to go back and double check that because otherwise it just makes no sense. But yet again, you know, we are continuing to get the bona fides of Masson, right? He he had what twenty five seconds with Amalia, forty five mm-hmm. seconds maybe at max with Amalia, and he's already sussed out. Um, don't know what she is. Can't tell you that, but I can tell you she's not a fool. She's not to be messed with. And there's a term that I think it's um, uh, Bronze Yan uses over the course of this conversation of where he refers to it as. Is she is she playing a part in this feminine plague? Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> How did you interpret that phrase? Was that just the general idea of I interpreted as him using that as a way of referring to the whole touched situation as the feminine plague? But did it also have levels about you know the general rising of women's rights in society or all of the above? I did not take it as the as the touched writ large. I thought it was the advocating for the touched. Gotcha. That's what. That's how I took it. Very, very um, possible. Masson then walks up to Hugo. <laughs> oh man, Hugo, 
just winning hearts and minds all over this episode. He he's going he's going to end up without two friends rubbed together by season by episode six. Man, he is how, just absolutely alienating people fast. How is this man put together a secret society with how utterly tactless he is about marketing? Could, seems to be money, right? Yeah, it seems to be money, and the really randy class upper classes of London are making this happen because. He can't for even a half second maintain a polite conversation with this guy. He could have brushed him off politely in a dozen ways, but he feels the need to willfully antagonize him at every opportunity. Yeah, he he does doesn't he? Uh, he does reference the the story Dracula, right? Because he talks he about the, the Bram Stoker. Yeah, it's a pretty it, sick it, reference, Hugo. Error appropriate. It just came out. Yeah, but mass. Yeah, hot off the hot off the the bestseller list, Dracula by this yep. this, this new and, entry, Bram Stoker, and very in keeping with Hugo because one of the key themes of Bram, well, the key things that the key people that Bram Stoker was really talking about here was the kind of upper classes that would go slumming with prostitutes and insects and everything else, and necessarily the plagues they would bring back with them. It's one of the undercurrent themes of what Bram Stoker was actually writing about, and so Hugo just so perfectly embodies that it's almost on the nose that he's referencing that book. Yeah, Masson cuts him off, um, says he heard a rumor that he wants to turn his ferryman's club into an actual business. Hugo tries to brush him off by saying, well, they're all full up. This is a little awkward. You know, we really can't, uh, I, you know, we're not, you're not going to be able to, to be a, a patron at my esteemed establishment, Masson points out. Um, some of his entertainers, well, Masson, first off, it completely ignores the idea that maybe he was he was trying to get in the door of the <laughs> ferryman's club, which, I mean, you, come on, that was ridiculous. I love he doesn't even respond to that. It doesn't even merit a response. It's just like, yeah. shut up, we're going on. But he does point out that some of the entertainers are afflicted. So we're starting to get into some gray legal area on multiple fronts here. I think yes. one is the fact you were trying to legitimize a sex club where people just come to pay for sex, which i got to think somewhere along the lines of of the code the municipal code there in london you could find a way to make that illegal i gotta think um i've got to double check whether prostitution was even illegal during this period i'm not sure it was but yeah but to to legitimize it into a business and and the the drinking and all of it there's got to be something you could shut down and then um he uh, you, you also have the issue of well can you have somebody who's afflicted be one of the prostitutes, right? Is that even, that could be a public safety issue. But if you are of the mindset of Lord Massa. Particularly in this day and age with recent events at play. Right. Um, so uh, Hugo does seem a little bit drunk and bored during this conversation. He does explain that their membership requests have doubled since the massacre. Masson seems frustrated here, brings up Hugo's father. Masson then gets in his face, I should warn you, um, I play a lot of squash. This is uh, Hugo's response to being to being physically threatened. I should warn you, I play a lot of squash. Might be the most upper crust shit talk I've ever heard in my life. I, yeah. Dear sir, I should warn you, I do play a lot of squash. Uh, sir, also, you, you, you've done some betting on boxing before. If these two go at it, how, what, what, what are you doing? Is the over-under for this? Um, I think it's going to be one of those deals where uh, it'll be a first round knockout. Obviously, Lord Masson <laughs> will knock out Hugo, but the but the punch count will be something like Hugo will have landed two out of forty two punches, and Lord Masson will have landed three out of three. I think just that's make, what that'll be. Just a lot just, of flailing coming from the Hugo Swan just, camp. Just making sure we're on the same page because this is like an old Hickory situation. Swan, don't pick this fight; you will break. 
got that old man strength. Hugo is uh, thrown off, throwing off about his father's demise uh, here during the conversation at one point. Masson does not like it, says his father had a great mind before it went. I, I guess like um, Hugo's father either had like Alzheimer's or dementia or something. Well, he's still around and appears to still, still have them. Because Hugo even does, he does a little taunting thing about, oh, I asked him about it and he said yes. And then he wandered off in search of his childhood dog. And I, I, yeah. I really appreciate that Masson, how, why Masson responds so negatively to that. Just how profoundly disrespectful he finds that line for an old comrade. Is that, that is a man worthy of respect. That is an old friend. He absolutely does not deserve you talking down to him. And then uh, he, but, but, but maybe, I, maybe I'm going to, yeah, maybe I'm going to actually, uh, against all odds, you are gonna take sympath- up a little bit for Hugo no, here. No, you are sympathizing with Hugo. You are maybe, buying what they are giving us here to sympathize with Hugo. Maybe a little, right? Because no, says, dude. Yes, yes, I remember his mind, and I remember his fist too. So I mean, I guess Hugo's like, "Hey, fuck you, man. That guy used to beat me up. Like, I don't care." Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, hey, that's not so. You know, that's not such an unreasonable position if that's actually Hugo's position here. Obviously, he's a complete prick when he's communicating all of these points uh, in and everything he does. Um, he's, he's sort of a jerk about it, but I think that's the general the the, the push and pull here. Uh, Masson does not respond well to the hat and basically exits the conversation while throwing out one line that just feels unnecessarily brutal, even for a guy that's pissed you off this much. Yeah, we will end it. Well, at one point, one other detail, Hugo does explain that the Ferryman's Club opens tonight, tonight. ladies and gentlemen. Whether so, Masson likes it or not, it's going it down. opening tonight, 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 tonight. It, it, it is um, going down and so are the girls. That is in whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, from Lord Masson as he exits the conversation. I used to think your father's mine went to field because your brother Caleb drowned. More likely, it's because you didn't. Well, I assure you, assure you, you're about to. Potential line of the episode. I think that's our first real serious nominee of the episode. That's a haymaker because that's probably the first moment we've ever seen Hugo shut entirely up after a conversation with anybody. Yep. Yeah, I think of it. What's the what's the over under here? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you do it in percentages. Percent chance we're gonna see Masson punch Hugo Swan in the face before we're done with the first six episode run. Uh, I, out of just personal desire for finding it the most cathartic thing ever, I'm gonna go a solid seventy five percent. That's where you know what you read my mind. I think it's about seventy five. These two are going to talk again, and I think Madison will punch him right and, in the jaw. And I'm also with you that the show is really trying to make Hugo sympathetic in this moment. They're trying to make us at least you know go a bit into his psychology. There, I don't care. I still hate the little prick. He's so insufferably annoying. Yeah, I I don't know if because Dad was beating him up. You know, he, maybe he gets a few jokes about uh, about his dad losing his mind. He, we're gonna give him a pass on that. If in fact. His dad was beating him up. But who knows? Hugo probably has a potential to lie about that. So we'll, we'll see. We're, we are not uh, given enough about this character to give him the benefit of the doubt in anything yet. Absolutely not. Cut to Amalia and Penance overlooking the courtyard at the orphanage, commenting on all the girls in it. One is Bindi Windy. Um, Penance admits her contortions might be a bit intimate for polite company. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you can make a million dirty jokes there if you'd like to. I think I know what she's trying to say here. It's like, you yes. know, like, you know, lifting lifting an ankle up over, oh, right ankle up over the left ear, you know, as you're, uh, as you're going, you know, you're, you're, the appetizers are being passed out at dinner might be a little weird. I think that's kind of what she's saying. <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting thing. We're both in this scene and just in terms of watching everybody, we get to see a lot of different abilities at play uh, that we hadn't previously seen in the last episode. Yeah, it's true. 
What, one of the ones that they pick is, I think her name is Harriet. It's uh, the uh, Indian woman that we saw in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, she has essentially Iceman powers, uh, where she can, is it, is it specifically, we only see her really freeze kind of, you know, water, but presumably she can, you know, emit a freeze ray at close range kind of deal. I immediately now am billing Mortal Kombat, right? It's Bonfire (laughs) versus this girl. Yes, Bonfire (laughs) versus this girl. Let's see, let's see the fire and ice. Let's do this thing. Damn straight. They think that she'll, you know, she'll be very photogenic and, you know, have a fun ability people will enjoy. They go with Primrose, which I thought at first was a weird decision, but ultimately I think it plays out well. She's a great visual prop. And... Then they also go with, um, I'm blanking on her name. What's, what's the name of the, of the uh, you know, running the house lady again? Uh, Lucy. Lu- they go with well, Lucy. Well, wait a second. I think we're talking about two different scenes here. Because I think what you're talking about is you're talking about when they're going to the party. What, but this, this is them vetting who to pick for the party. Okay. All right. Got it. Yep. All right. We're, we're there together. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, going, they're going through a list of who, who would be the the best to show off to upper society to convince them that they are both entertaining and safe and fun to be around. And I've got to say, with what this party ends up being, and just what you said, what the goal is, which is, hey, let's show up, let's show that we're, you know, some of the some of the turns are relatively benign, they're harmless, they're not to be worried about. Primrose has got to be like an A-plus candidate for this thing, right? Uh-huh. She is perfect. And she crushes it when she's there, too. So all the patience in the world out of Primrose. Yeah, I I was briefly kind of doubting it a little bit because I I thought she might have to be intimidating or not have the most flashy abilities. But in retrospect, yeah, it's an utterly great call, not only because she has the perfect physicality to, you know, just be a useful prop for people to want to come up and be around, but she also carries it like the proper English lady that she actually is. So kudos on her, despite the fact she clearly is frustrated and biting her tongue for a lot of it. Yeah, but I thought Primrose did a great job. She's she's a potential real MVP of the episode. Um, when they when she's allowing them to all take pictures and all the all the pictures with her and how how patient she is. Anyway, we'll get to the scene. But Primrose was a great pick here by Penance and Amalia. I, I'm perfectly with them when it comes to Harriet. Fun ability there in terms of being able to freeze things. Perfectly with them with Primrose. The other two picks I'm a little more iffy about. Um, for one, Penance herself is a kind of a weird pick to be there as, you know, a trained dog kind of prop thing. Well, that, she just, she, well Lavinia picked Penance. She did. And I think it's just being, you're the leader of this in terms of coordinating it. Because otherwise her abilities are the definition of non really, you know, flashy for a crowd. She makes cool technology. And she doesn't really bring that much in the way of technology with her either. So for a purpose of like showing off to entertain a group of people about all the kind of fun abilities that the touch can do, She's a bit of a weird pick, other than that she's in a position of leadership. Well, there was a reason, right? Because there was, there was a, a reason. There was a little. There was a little hint in Lavinia when she was explaining it. When she says, "Well, you need to come around and like be cute or something like that," I yeah. think that part of the reason for the Lavinia for the um, the Penance pick is is she's obviously not not difficult on the eyes. The, it is definitely an idea there. That I think that is probably a good read about the reason that she's there. Um, the other one, though, uh, Lucy, right? I'm just inherently blanking on that name. Um, yeah, it, Lucy, yeah. Is a, is it both a great choice and also a weird choice? Great choice, she's got a fun, flashy ability. She can literally shatter objects that she touches. That's just entertaining. Rougher choice, though, she's a bit coarse. She's a, she, she is, but she also seems to help Primrose calm down a lot, though. 
True, she does have a close relationship with Primrose and she does care about the other girls. She also can barely tolerate being around the upper crust gentry and is willing to mock them to their faces, which is not necessarily what Lavinia wants this crowd to do. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. Lucy might not have been the strongest pick there. I would say that um, that, 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 that of those, I would think Primrose is probably the, the most obvious good pick, and she's the one that delivers the best when we get to the party. Absolutely. Kudos to her. She did great. Um, as they walk back to the workshop, Penance wonders aloud why Lavinia created the orphanage, which she is apparently not comfortable in. This is a, another little weird detail here about Lavinia. I thought I had Lavinia pegged in episode one. I thought she was the godmother of everything. She created that she's rich. She created this orphanage because she realized that the, the touch, the afflicted, whatever you want to call them, were not being treated fairly. And by God, she was going to fix this societal ill. This is not what the case is with Lavinia. Um, we are getting a little bit of hints uh, as we go. And one of those hints to me is the fact that she's not seemingly even comfortable in the orphanage herself. She only goes when she has to go, um, which is something that Penance drops for us. Penance is then getting her... Um, yeah, it's 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 one, it's one of those things with those character. Almost, we were doing a lot of wire references last episode. It, it reminds me of like when um, I think it's Marlowe says to that one guy, "You want it to be one way, but it's the other way." I thought it was going to be one trope when it came to this character, but no, it's a completely different trope than I was expecting. Really, yeah, it is the other way. It appears with uh, with Lavinia Bidlow. Um, Penance is then getting her Lucius from Batman on. Got the reference <laughs> right this episode. Got it right. Um, she's handing you, some toys to Amalia. Last episode, you got a lot of right references. You just couldn't stick to one. You kept getting different kinds of, you know, technical genius guys that support the main hero. Yeah, I was struggling. But yeah, that Lucius, the, uh, the character, uh, Morgan Freeman's character from the most recent Batman. Um, well, the, 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 the most recent one that you should remember, Batman series. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's ignore, yeah. Good call. What's it going the most? Yeah, the only the, the last one that should be in your memory uh, is the Lucius, Christian Bale which, is, which basically like it's like the the tech genius behind the superhero, and yeah. that is kind of the roles we're getting here with Penance and Amalia. And Penance uh, has developed something for Amalia here. It looks to be some sort of goggles that um, will help with like really bright flashing lights. Yeah, they're and, they're they're, they're, they're anti flashbang goggles kind of thing, which makes sense given the technology we've seen her use before. Yeah, and uh, she says it's supposed to help uh, for Malady when uh, when Malady has the eye glow. Um, so what, that was what, what was that? I thought that was weird, right? Because I thought that it made a lot of sense to give her those goggles because of bonfire, but for, because of bonfire or because of the friggin' flashbangs we saw, you know, pants yeah, herself use. I did not get the impression that Malady, when she goes into the sort of you will not like me when I'm angry look, when she gets the the yellow eyes, I didn't get the impression that those yellow eyes were like Cyclops. Like somehow like they were like super, they had like UV rays or something associated with them. So I thought it was a weird line. It made, that either made no sense at all or it's a joke that just, <laughs> it, it either made no sense at all or it was a joke that just did not land. It's one of those two things. Because... <laughs> We have no setup whatsoever to say that this is some kind of eye beam or controlling minds thing at all. It just seems to be her eyes light up when she's angry. So I I wrote it off as a bad joke on Penance's part. So so right now, who knows if this will hold, but right now we, we're, the, we're the second most popular podcast that covers the Nevers on Apple Podcasts right now. Number one is HBO's, their official podcast that covers the Nevers. I, at the start of this episode, was going to say something along the lines of, hey, just, just a heads up, we are an unofficial podcast where we cover the Nevers. We, do, we, we don't want to get that confused at all. Um, 
You know, I think you just covered that, Spencer. With I'm here the, for you. I'm with here for the, you. Uh, it either made no sense at all. <laughs> I give options to people. Come on. If anybody had it twisted, if we were associated with HBO, you just dropped the hammer right there. No way. What? Spencer drops in. It's either complete nonsense that they put on the screen, or it was a terrible joke. <laughs> I either wrote it off as either being bad writing or a different kind of bad writing. One of the two is what I'm going with. <laughs> um, then uh, Penance also then says, uh, so I thought that the goggles were for Bonfire. No, Penance has something else for Bonfire. And, and I don't know what the hell this thing is, and it doesn't work, and the scene goes nowhere. It, it's so weird, too, because she ultimately uses the glasses Against bonfire. The only time we see them work is stopping her corneas being fried from a big fire from bonfire jumping out in front of her. So why didn't they just say it that way and just leave the scene there? Yeah, it, it was pretty strange that they had to throw it. I mean, the only thing I can think here is that, you know, Amalia is going to be in the middle of a fight with bonfire at some point, And Penance is going to be like, here you go. And like throw her this contraption that we've now seen. And it will magically work at that period. And then then that will save a million or something. Is is this a a circa 1800, 1890s proton pack from Ghostbusters? Is this what this is or something? Because it looks like this massive contraption with a nozzle on the end of it. I have no idea what it is or what it's supposed to do. But I am just a hunch here that we haven't seen the end of it. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to spray some kind of, you know, fire suppressant foam or whatever else that just kind of well, wraps up. But that's up the thing. They've got the fire suppressant foam. It's the, it's Harriet. It's Harriet Carr. I, I it's know. The, 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 like that. I know. <laughs> Why it, are you even doing this, Penance? Get Harriet around. I mean, the, the purpose of the scene seems to be give, to, give, to remind us of Penance's abilities because otherwise they don't really know what to do with them over the course of the episode. We get her to see her drive the car. She invents this one object, which I find unrealistic anyway because we have Lavinia say a few scenes earlier that the police showed up two days afterwards and she was surprised it took them that long, which kind of implies that all of this is only like two days after the shooting at the theater. So she invented these objects in like two days time. Yeah. She's really fucking smart, Spencer. You should, you should put some respect on Penance's name. I am going to hate this character's abilities. I know that now. I actually really had a fun time with the character in this episode but I know for a fact her abilities, which I'm doing with massive air quotes, are going to frustrate the shit out of me with this show. Cut to Cassini's in the uh, meeting in the alleyway with a friend we saw her chatting with at the beginning of the episode. She explained she's pretty much living on the run. Parents kicked her out. When it became apparent, she was touched. Midway through the conversation, she's over here. She's over here. It oh, was a setup, Spencer. Betrayal most fun. Uh, yes, police come to get her. Clearly, a friend was setting her up. Um... And this is a dynamic it looks like London's living with, right? It's um, me and you, Spencer. We're very close. Apparently, if we were in 1899 and we were in this world and you were touched, all of a sudden, I'm bringing the police in to catch you, right? Like, it seems like that's the dynamic. It's like you're one you're one superpower away from, like, losing all your friends. I, we are close enough friends, dude, that when I call the police on you, I will provide you one text message at least six minutes before they get there. Yeah, please, if you're going to call the police for, uh, please call, what's his name? Please call uh, Frank. Please don't call the, the guy with the damn drill. I don't want that guy. Uh, I will call Frank Monday. You're reassured. Don't worry. Yeah, Frank, don't call me. Frank, he cut to Penance and some of her charges uh, showing up at Lavinia's house. So it's all her, all her gang showing up at Lavinia's house. She's rocking the Tesla. She's passing people on the road. She's looking She's pretty passing sweet. Them on, she's passing them on the right. How rude. 
so sweet. Blowing right bomb on the horse and buggies. And Lavinia, it appears, uh, lives in some sort of yellow Downton Abbey. I mean, this house is monstrous. <laughs> that, that is a um, gorgeous estate. That is a fundamentally is a gorgeous. It is a biggin. Uh, inside, the Touched are getting a briefing from Lavinia, who tells them to socialize a bit. Just go around. Wander, um, mingle, mingle, have fun. Not you, Primrose, though. You should stay by the stairs. Um, <laughs> then Lavinia tells them to put on... Uh, here we go, Spencer. All right. Mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. we go. This is on the nose. This is this really is on the nose. This is tough writing. I just wonder who in the writing room didn't raise their hand because there had to be someone in the writing room going this is a little much guys this is just a little much but somehow it got through the writing room and it got up on our screen and that's right they are making them wear blue ribbons blue ribbons we we we, we just might as well be yellow i mean this is one of those things of where I guess to just really hammer home the point, let's bring in both, you know, Scarlet, Scarlet Ribbon and also the Holocaust. Why not? Let's complete the package. Yeah, let's make them, let's like them put on blue ribbons. Um, I just felt like, that. yeah, you, you started it, it's on the nose. It's just a little much. It's mm-hmm. just too much, guys. Um, your feet, that was a heat check moment from the writer's room. We already got it. We already got that they're uncomfortable with this. You can set that up by showing us just how much they feel like they're being, you know, dehumanized to a certain degree and treated more as performing animals rather than props. We already were on the same page to understand that. And you actually do a pretty good job, primarily through Primrose, of showing it. Which is, again, I really loved what they did with Primrose, and I really thought the actress and the character did very great at that. You don't need to double down. I'm with you. I get it. You don't need to do friggin', you know... Mark of David's star of David's uh, armbands. Yeah, it was. T- it's a tough look, but so that that's my complaint with like the writing. There, you could have used a different device, but I I do think the fact that there was a device or that there was a fact that they were having to put something on to identify. I mean, I still think that we're just continuing to be fed little bits of information about Lavinia. The fact that Lavinia would even ask them to put the yes. damn ribbon on. We are the, wherever we had Lavinia in our power rankings at the end of episode one, it's just got each it's just knocking, notching down as the episode. Oh, goes. Yeah. Now, she's, she's pretty low down on the ladder at this point, but asking yeah. them to put the damn ribbons on. Yeah, important clarification. Neither of us are saying that this is an element of setting up, you know, a necessary theme. We're not saying it doesn't work. It almost works too well. It's too coarse. We almost want it to be more subtle, but we're it's not too coarse. Yes. Not, Thank you, Spencer. We're not, but we're not really criticizing the idea that they use it. It's setting up a necessary theme of the show, and it does some interesting things with the characters and where they go forward. And it even sets up a fun exchange between Augustus and Penance later on too. It's. It, that's why you're my co-host, Spencer. It's just the the the, the writing is too coarse there. Yeah. That's there you go. That's what it is. Cut to the orphanage. A woman is there with her child. Amalia answers the door. A woman asks if this is where all the strange women go. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and throw this one out to you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, really loving this new character, Desiree De- Bloodgit. Blood she- Desiree Bloodgit really enjoyed her. I wasn't sure what to make of her at first, because I often can find characters that are just utter jabber boxes, a bit annoying, but I really came around to her by the end of the episode. I, I started to have a bit more fun with her now that I knew what they were using her for. I thought she did. I thought this was a pretty solid new bit character. That was mm-hmm. pretty good. I quite enjoyed it. Um, um, but anyway, the question, is this where all the strange women go? I just wrote down in my notes, I bet Amalia gets some iteration of this question like 35 times a day. I think about how many people just show up to Amalia 
like with some iteration of that question. <laughs> hey, is uh, this where uh, this where I can just come and just like you, just show? you you need a thin you need a thick skin quick to be in the job that she is. Notably, uh, while Amalia is talking to this lady, she gets what looks to be a flashback uh, to her fight with Malady. Well, maybe we, we think it's a. I thought it was a flashback too. I, I we, know, but it's we, not. We later learn, and as we're getting to better understand her abilities, this is a flash forward. Exactly, and I want and, it, and I wanted to like like point out my confusion when I first saw the scene right because I think you. it works. I think it works what it they're does. going for here. They're giving us just little tippets or snidbits, uh, snidbits, snippets. I don't know what it is. Little teeny flashes um, of time for from Amalia, and we're just getting just enough of it to confuse us, and that's good because we're meant to know that it confuses her. And I think that's a very, very uh, effective device that they are and using. And it's subtle. It's not hitting us over the nose with it. She doesn't immediately explain it. They give us time to come to terms with it, and then before she does. I yes. really, I really like, I actually legitimately liked the writing they did for Amalia this episode in terms of the other characters she interacts with and the exchanges she has. That I actually enjoyed, not just tolerated. So kudos to them. That gave me a lot of hope. Yeah, uh, it, it, this is not blue ribbon territory here. This is uh, this is actually a little bit subtle. Um, Desiree explains that she is a part of the world's oldest profession. That's right, she, ladies and gentlemen. She is a hua. She is a she is a working girl, sir. Uh, she explains that her clientele like to talk to her, tell her all sorts of things, Spencer. Oh yeah, um, and I was buying that just me too. With, with, Without any further explanations, <laughs> yeah. that that's a common trope that, you know, the, the people that are below notice, the whores that interact with all kinds of people in society, can be great information dealers. It can be part of their business. So I was completely on the same page that that required no further explanation without at all expecting where they were going with that. Pretty cool how they put their cards on the table for this character, too, because she starts talking and she's like, basically, they just, you know, during the process, you know, during, <laughs> the, during the, the process... process the uh, they, they tell me things and you know they some clientele told me too much and then later on he came back and he said he was probably going to try to kill me for it so you know i'm here now and you know that's just something that kind of happens to me and you know you buy it and then um amalia starts to talk to her and she starts to think she's a plant oh who planted you who sent you here and then she starts to talk and all of a sudden i don't recognize my girl amalia anymore yeah. i don't know why she's telling this person so much yeah. and then whoop, pump the brakes ladies and gentlemen we figure out what her turn is. Yeah, yeah kudos. They played my mind on this. Because I thought, like, oh, yeah. that's that's really out of character writing. Why would yep. she be doing this? Why would she be doing like that? And then suddenly she stopped and went. And then so, at the same time, she stopped and went, oh. I went, oh, oh yeah, that's clever. That's, yeah, that's well really done. Good. Yeah, we're, we criticize the show a lot. We are, nothing, if nothing, if not honest, on the Nevermore podcast. But we will we'll also tell you when we think they did a good job and I think they did yeah. a really good job with this scene because um, I was kind of following along I was like oh okay you know Desiree must just have a very engaging personality and then all of a sudden I'm like why is Amalia losing her oh okay got it and that is what the turn is Desiree if you just get around her you just start blabbering she's uh, basically like a human truth serum it seems. <laughs> everyone just wants to bar their soul to her and immediately Amalia thinks how she can weaponize this, which is honestly a bit rude, but also quite clever. Although Amalia's like, um, like self, like, um, criticism that she's doing when she's getting the, the truth serum from Desiree is pretty funny when she's like, basically she's saying, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to find someone the beggar King can't trace by looking at fucking street street maps. I'm not even from this city. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> Yeah, I enjoy 
I enjoyed that kind of insight into her personalities, that this is not a person that is just, you know, utterly self-possessed with confidence. She's really just kind of winging it to make this work, and she's able to try to pull it off the best she can. She's like the rest of us, self-doubt mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, they show up at Mundy's office, um, uh, well, because when, I should say, when... Amalia figures out what Desiree's turn is. She goes, get your coat. We're leaving. Very, very smart move here. Very, very smart move by Amalia. It's smart. It also is profoundly rude. But it is, I will legitimately give her kudos that it is clever. We're going to play out the kind of violation since we get out of this in a minute, though. Uh, well, I don't know that it's rude. I mean, look, Monday just rolled up in her house and like... He, did, tried he to, had a warrant. He, he had a valid warrant. He was trying. Look, Spencer, you, as the lawyer that you are, should recognize just how inappropriate he was by trying to execute a warrant on parts of the property weren't authorized. I mean, you know, Monday knew better than that. He's in there. Um, I thought. I thought the fact that he was trying to look through everything on the property, even though he didn't have authorization to do so, I thought that was spectacularly rude. So I thought that these two did not get off on a good foot, obviously. And so what Amalia is doing here, where she brings Desiree in to basically truth serum the guy, it seemed appropriate for their relationship, given where they started. That's what I'm saying. I am with you, but I'm also a person that views the kind of, you know, special powers and abilities throughout fiction that purposely manipulate other people's minds and get them to act act outside of their will is actually being profoundly violating in a way that a lot of stories don't talk about. And so I'm kind of with Frank in terms of the level of response that he has here when he finds that somebody without his knowledge or ability to control fucked with his mind. But let's set the scene up. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they go into to Mundy's office and as they go into the office, uh, Mundy, one of his underlings, uh, announces these two ladies are coming in. Spencer, did you catch what the guy says to Mundy as he's leaving? I absolutely love this line. It was, um, my, my notes have frozen. I'm up off to drink lunch. You coming? <laughs> I adored that. that. That is a functioning alcoholic, my friends. Pretty funny. In come Amalia and Desiree. Smart move here by Amalia. I will continue to hammer that. I thought it was a smart move. I will agree. Um, we find out that uh, Mundy was... But anyway, bring Desiree in and Mundy starts talking. We find out that Mundy was engaged to be married to Mary. You talk about batting out of your... I mean, punching out of your weight class. Um, I don't know, uh, batting batting above the order. I don't know what <laughs> metaphor you want here, Spencer. But Mundy was doing well for himself here with Mary Brighton. I was astonished that those two were ever in the same conversation. I think she loved him for his personality. and Had you know, to be. He, Maybe he's a really accomplished singer or dancer. We don't know about his skills outside the job. Yeah, Though, had to be his personality, that, that glowing personality we've seen hey, with Frankie hey, Mundy. We get some good reads on him before this episode is done. <laughs> uh, but anyway. What? Um, they were engaged. Yeah, they were engaged. And he explains that he's just babbling because truth serum, Desiree. He explains that he was basically left at the altar. Uh, Mary did not show up at the altar. Uh, when they were set to be married. And he says something along the lines of, I don't have the quote in front of you, but it says something along the lines of, you know, I wouldn't marry me either. There's the obvious stuff, but then there's the darker. He says, then there's the darker stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he, he frames it first. It worse the obvious stuff. There was the job, but then, yeah, he hints at something worse. The worst things. And that's when 
you know, Amalia does pull the lever here. I wouldn't have. I'd have let him keep going. Uh, you've already established that you find that fundamentally invasive and rude. Uh, Malia does say you, you need to stop talking. Well, stop talking. And, and it seems that Amalia does too. That she did this for a purpose to essentially get down barriers to know whether she could trust this guy and establish a rapport that ultimately works out pretty great. But she didn't really want to hurt him or get him to actually reveal things that would hurt him for other people to know. Um, so I, 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 there's no stopping that at that point. If it's me. I was just so, well, I had to know. Well, one fun thing too is he's babbling, which is all this is meant to be just, you know, stream of consciousness tapping into the id kind of moments. That as he's revealing all the valid reasons that she left him and that he was hurt, but all the valid reasons that she did, he aggressively confronts them and says, but don't you judge her. She's a yeah. good person. She meant well. Don't know why she did it, but don't you judge her. And that was a really interesting thing that whatever resentment or pain or loss he has, he does not blame her for what happened, it seems. Well, it's be well, he, it wasn't, I don't think it was left up like, to uh, to our imagination i think he connects the dots for us he says don't yes. you blame her don't you blame her i wouldn't have i wouldn't have married me either yeah. there was the job there was the this there was the that and then there are the worst things so he's yeah. he connected the dots for us as to why he thinks that she shouldn't be blamed for leaving him at the altar absolutely um amalia says um where are we at here with the recap what? oh uh desiree re leaves the room mundy figures it out whips <laughs> out a gun, gun. amalia but the most important, most interesting part of this scene to me, or this this part of this scene, is that Amalia give first off gives a little ugh, like when she sees the gun, like uh, uh, another again Tuesday, with and says, "Don't make me take that away from you." Again, well, Spencer, I'm I'm Carrie from Homeland on my big board with Amalia's superpowers over here. I have got strings well, and dots and tapes, and I don't know what's going on with her superpower. Is she really like not scared of a gun in the face? Does she really think she can take it away from him if he has half a mind to shoot her at this point? Um, you seem to think it's a bluff. Uh, I think it's at least on the table that, you know, um, she has some, something about her, her affliction would have allowed her to yank that gun right away from him. At this point, we think she's super strong. And I think we have further evidence for that in this episode. Oh, and, sure. that, that, and that she has this ability to kind of have this uh, reverse PTSD to flash forward to the future to see Carrie's events. We know those things. Frank doesn't know any of this, though, at this point. So I see this as a bit of a bluff because there's nothing that she could do necessarily to take the gun away from other just brute force it. She's not You fat. don't know. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying is that there might be like a level, like a third level to this power that we it's haven't seen. It's possible. But I, I think at this that she's putting forward a strong face so as to get him to blink. And it works. I don't know. I, I think that maybe she... Because she, she does... I mean, it was like a legit... Like as if you, I mean, like pulled out like a, a pop gun, uh, you know, like a pop gun or a, a paper plane or something. Like, I mean, it was like, like it was like, like brush it off your shoulder type situation from Amalia as if she, she couldn't be bothered with the gun. So I don't know. I, I'm just what? still trying to piece together what the hell her turns are. It may have also been her being able now to read a bit about Frank just from what he was babbling, that he also is also probably not the guy to shoot her right then and right there, right there either. There's a bit of a different side to this character than the otherwise gruff, abusing suspect's reputation that he has. That, or maybe Amalia's already had a rippling about when she dies, and she knows this ain't it, so she's not too concerned about it. <laughs> I, I've seen that Western. What's possible we could play with those themes, too? Yeah. Um... Amalia explains that she knows she's going to catch Malady. She's seen it one of a ripple. She just doesn't know if Mary will be dead or not when she finds her. She needs to know if Mundy cared more about A, finding Mary, or B, catching Malady. She suspects that his orders are B. 
should be caring more about catchy malady. Um, uh, but apparently she has deduced from the, the truth serum situation with Desiree that, in fact, he, he probably cares a little bit more about finding Mary. And, and he pretty much, op- at this point forward, the two of them establish a pretty interesting kind of business relationship where they're not, neither's really hiding much from the other, except for one key moment that frustrates the shit out of me later. We'll get to that. But at one point, um, Mundy scoffs at her and says, you touched your worst than the fucking toffs uh, for all, all you, uh, all you Americas out there. Um, let me <laughs> tell you what you toffs, Americas? yeah, let me tell you what toffs is. Toff means upper crust, um, or you basically, you, you, you rich guy. Something like yes. That. Your pops. It is very, it is very much British slang. Uh, from there, uh, Amalia explains to Mundy that Mary's turn is that she can sing a song that only the touch can hear. Mm-hmm. What is song it about? Hope. Hope. Yeah. Hope. What is it about? Hope, ladies and gentlemen. That is vague. That is remarkably vague. But it seems like it, again, it, it does instill this kind of good feeling about the universe and whoever it is, whoever is um, well touched by it. Cut to Mary, who's chained up, and some woman is near. Asking, oh, God, I hate this scene. I hate asking this scene her so to sing for her, says if she can hear it, she'll finally know she's touched. Mary says she can't, and you're not. Um, the girl says she's working for her turn. So it seems like, here's what I'm piecing together here, Malady has some people who are not touched working for her, and she is basically promising, uh, I'll give you one of these hero's superpowers, if, uh, if you'll just do what I tell you to do. Is that what you took from that, or am I reading too much into it? I think so, yes. It seems this person believes that, whether it's Malady that told her, or whether it's whoever Malady's ultimately working for, can't I don't know yet, but it seems this person strongly believes that if she puts in her due diligence, if she you know works as hard as they tell her to do, she will ultimately be touched in some shape or form. And then a very strange thing happens. She pulls up her foot and she says, at first I needed to just lose like a pinky toe. It looks like she's lost like half her foot. Um, and then a guy comes in and says, we got some turkey for you. Mary takes a pipe and is disgusted. Now this, I don't know. Is what? <laughs> I mean, they, is it her they, foot? They don't set up this guy's abilities well in terms of what this guy is. They don't explain later that the Colonel, who we now know this is, has the ability to convince anything, anybody of anything so long as he says it. So when he said this was turkey, in reality it was something different. Do they ever really say what it is, actually? I, but here's my problem with it. Yeah. Maybe I'm just too morbid. Maybe I've seen too many horror movies. But we saw half the foot. And then yeah. we see the, ooh, this is not turkey, yeah. and it's like a big joke from the colonel. I'm wondering, is did, did, did he just throw Mary some human flesh here? Like, is it that dark? Uh, that I mean, th- they are framing this so we understand it in that light, and they don't give us anything else really to work with, other than maybe it's like rancid meat or just something else that's not turkey. But they really set up the foot right before he walks in. Bonfire sends a little flame over to warn them, says Melody. Malady said not to play with that one. The guy and the girl mentioned that Bonfire is more of a hired hand, not a true believer. So basically, we're starting to piece together some of the, the dynamics here of Malady's crew. It looks like Bonfire is not one of these like, oh, you know, God is telling me and put the crown of thorns on my head and that whole she's thing. It looks like she's, she's there for the bag, Spencer. What? She's ready to pick up a bag. Question, what the hell is that character wearing, by the way? She's wearing like this kind of fur top with a top hat, kind of with a, with a little like a, a bowler cap kind of thing. He's on like, my bonfire. Yeah, I'm talking about bonfire. Uh, I don't know, but it's pretty fly. 
It's pretty fly, but it's the definition of I have no desire to blend in. This is not a person that's... Oh, hell no. She walks around with a fireball. Like, she doesn't care. Where where does this person go day to day that people aren't noticing her? What circles does she run in that this isn't just like, oh, that's the person that was at the theater? Yeah, so then they leave and Malady comes in. Bonfire explains that she's got the name of Amalia and her address. Uh, Malady says she needs to see something of her, something that will give her a glimpse into like her soul or something. Um, here's the thing: I'm going to struggle with the recap with the Malady, the Malady scenes um, because Malady, um, for every like one word that makes sense, there's like four words of like gibberish, and it, it, I, I understand there. Like I think I brought up like Helen Bonham Carter, like um, in the last episode, right? The 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 lady who was in all of those. Um, Every single, every single Tim Burton, Johnny Depp film ever made. Yeah. Um, and how she kind of acts certain things. Um, I think they're going for that. I, I, what I'm going to tell you, though, is that I think it's being overdone and it's starting to bore me already. Well, it's, it's one of those things where Helen Bonacar is also a very skilled actress and also typically picks films that have good writing. And this has neither of those and also has no sense of discretion. No sense it's of... It's just too much here, man. This is too much. I legitimately despise almost every scene that Malady is in because it is just it, it, it is just get the booby prize this week it is just so over the top unnecessary they're like going for this kind of you know just like Beatrix Lestrange kind of deal I know that character because it's in so much advertising um which I think is also played by Helena Bottom Carter, right? It is. I was just so for all right, we're gonna pause there. For those that don't know, Spencer is on another sister podcast here on the Magnetox Podcast channel called Pottering Around. He's doing a chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter. He has never seen the movies, he's not had it spoiled, and he's never read the book. So everything he's reading week by week is new. So when I was saying this is Helen Bottom Carter, I was having to stop short I of the Harry Potter. I thought you were a reference to this. <laughs> I was having to stop short I, of Harry Potter because I, I didn't have, know if he got there yet. <laughs> I have no context for this character other than somebody sent me like a 30-second clip of Helda Bottom Carter acting really weird. It was named Beatrix, Beatrix Lestrange. So I know that's a thing. Okay, I have no right. idea how it factors into the stories. <laughs> but for those listening, you were probably wondering, why, why isn't Lee just go ahead and mentioning the Harry Potter character? Uh, well, I'm, that's why. <laughs> just don't tell, don't tell me what she actually is. I just know she exists. But it's... So much of her scenes, like you said, are just gibberish. It's just yeah, it's gibberish that goes on for so long. And the I don't know if it's the acting or the dialogue for this entire scene of them just down in the bowels of this kind of, you know, hydraulic plant or whatever this is. But it is just almost intolerable to watch. It is just bad. It's the it's, it's probably the, it's too much. It's probably the nadir of the episode for me. So I'm going to try to fly through here. We, we, we're, we're a little bit uh, off our pace here. So I'm going to try to fly through this scene. Um, Malady says, um, Malady, so Bonfire then basically tells Malady, like, like you're an idiot. Um, I can, I can work with crazy, not stupid. She leaves. There's a little bit of, uh, of some, maybe some vibes going on between Malady and Bonfire. They're a little touchy. I don't know why. Um, maybe we'll, we'll get that answered for us later. Malady didn't ask Mary why she sang the other night, why she's singing. Mary says she was basically, uh, I sing when I try to help people. Basically, that's what she's saying. I sing when I'm, I'm scared or I'm hurting, and I think maybe I can help people. And Malady then just kind of shuts down and says, no, what I meant was, have you always wanted to be in the theater? So um, just she's just zigzagging, this Malady character, all over the place. Hard to really follow what she's saying. This is like one of the things that when various mediums try to like portray the Joker from you know Batman as a character, and I'll, some of them just don't know how to do him other than to make him seem just the zany kind of crazy, and it doesn't work. 
They're doing that hard with Malady throughout all of these scenes, and it's just not something I enjoy. Yeah, cut to Lavinia's sufficiently stuffy string music is playing, and it looks like the Touched are kind of making their rounds, giving benign demos of their turn. We see Lucy break something, um, which everybody then erupts in cheers. Oh, that's so great. And then we see Primrose, the real MVP of the episode, getting her picture taken. And she's got a smile on her face, Spencer, but uh, doesn't seem doesn't seem too happy. It's a smile that is increasingly strained over the course of this episode, but it doesn't break. She keeps to her role. She does the job that she's there for, despite the fact it gets increasingly uncomfortable for her as these people really don't treat her as much of a person as a very entertaining object. It's like they're standing next to the Leaning Tower of Pisa rather than a, you know, a living, breathing human that wants to tell you about her family in the process. Cut to Augustus, who walks up to Penance and Lucy. Augustus babbles a little bit. Finally, Penance asks him, spit it out. What are you here for? He says, oh, there's some paintings over here. Maybe you want to see. Anyway, he's just trying to get her alone. So he takes Penance into the room. Dude, dude, He does better than he did last time. Let's give the man kudos. For nerds everywhere like me that have still no concept of how to talk to women, even though I've been in a relationship for 10 years, he's doing better. He did a lot better this time than the last time he interacted Um... Yeah, but it was still pretty rough. It I mean, was pretty it, rough. He got, he got off to such a slow start that she actually had to say, what are you doing here? Um, <laughs> Let me help you with your flirting. Yeah. Uh, cut to Cassini, who's running around looking for Amalia. Okay, so we cut to Lavinia's, and uh, Augustus and Penance are alone in a room. Uh, I would call this, what, what do you call this, Spencer? Are they flirting yet, or is this just the, the, the build-up to flirting? We do get to flirting in this episode, though. I don't know if we- they're quite there yet. This is the kind of polite conversation that is flirting if somebody wants it to be. It's, this is the kind of intent of the party style of flirting of where this could just be two people having a polite talk about random topics, or it could be a bit more charged than that. Yeah, and Augustus um, asked if he should be wearing... No, um, Augustus asked if he should be wearing one of those ribbons, hmm. um, which, you know, uh, and, and which Penance had a great retort, should we? Like, should we even be wearing them? Um, very good line. Now, I, I will say that in the last episode, we said, you know, listeners of the Nevermore podcast, we are here for you. We have you. Um, we got you. We got you a spoiler. It's that Augustus is touched. This will be. We saw it coming. This will be given to you slowly over a period of episodes. It'll be a big reveal, and when it <laughs> when it's revealed, you can look to Spencer and Lee and say thank you guys for for really helping me out and, and telegraphing that. Uh, nah. ah, Twenty five minutes of screen time later, uh, they already let the cat out of the bag. Augustus he, is in fact touched. Yes, and he's so he's so flippant about it too. You know the secret that he's carried for his entire life. You know truly his you know scarlet letter kind of situation just kind of casually drops it in conversation as if they're both completely on the same page, which I guess that little look that they kind of shared in the moment there when they're having Mary's beam connect them, I guess they were on the same page, but I don't know how much we were. I don't know. I think that he, I took his comments to mean that he, after Mary's song, that he just assumed Penance knew, Penance knew. Um, so she did. Yeah, she knew. So he might as well say it. And then I also thought there was a little touch of like, Hey, we got this secret, right? Me and you got mm-hmm. a secret. Me and you together, just the two of us. A secret. Mm. We should talk about it just together, me and you, right? That's what I do. Penance asked him if he knew before the opera, and he said he'd had moments where he'd always been keen on birds. And I'm like, hmm, where is this going? Then he drops this one on us. I dreamt I was a crow. Spencer. Ah! <laughs> dreamt oh I was God! a crow. Oh, my God. And he proceeds to explain that he... 
had dreams of being in a crow and flying. And then it, then after it happened when he was dreaming, one day it happened when he was awake. Now, for the uninitiated, uh, this is exactly what Bran Stark is in Game of Thrones. He's a warrior to, to, to the point that he, you know, he even starts when he's dreaming. And then, yeah. it, then it because then it actually something that he's able to to harness and start to do on command when he's awake. But it be it comes introduced to the character when he's dreaming, and it starts with I know in the in the book it's the or in the show it's the Raven, but in the book it's the Crow, the three eyed Crow, and he starts the line with I dreamt I was a Crow. My question for you, Spencer, is obviously we are going to have a field day with this with jokes that Augustus is now the three eyed Crow that he has to get north of the Wall, and one day he will be the king who could not stand. But <laughs> my question for you is. Do, were the writers aware of what they're doing? Because HBO loves to give little subtle nods to other shows. Like, they, how could they not have been? I'd almost wonder if it's contractually required now that HBO has a certain character be in the form of a green seer, be in the form of a warg. Because this is so perfectly on the nose. It's almost, it's so perfectly on the nose even where it isn't exactly the same. That it is distinctly Corvid's, it is you know, crows and magpies, but it's not ravens like the show. So the fact it's not even exactly the same, it seems even more that it's making a reference to the to Game of Thrones. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently on a Game of Thrones rewatch because um, HBO is pushing the hashtag marathon. All of you folks out there who are not doing a Game of Thrones rewatch right now, I suggest you do it because social media is a buzz with a rewatch. I'm a part of that. I'm out there on social, Spencer. I'm posting every night. I'm having myself a grand old time. But I will tell you that I recently on season four, and I had forgotten this, but the Hound at one point in season four turns to Arya and says, a man's got to have a coat, which is obviously a shout out to The Wire. That was that was number one on my, my HBO cross-reference big board list. It has now been debunked. That is number two. Fully the fact surpassed. that Augustus is the the three eyed crow is now a number one. Well, I think this is. I think they knew what they were doing here. I think that they were looking for something for Augustus to be. Mm-hmm. I think we get a little hint that it's going to play into the plot, you know, with his ability to watch other characters and stuff like that. And I thought like they maybe maybe played it up a little bit in the writing for fun. That's my well, guess. I, I agree, and it, it leads to all kinds of fun questions because you know Bran. Bran or in the books, Arya and, you know, Rob and all the other Stark siblings weren't restricted to, you know, a particular kind of animal or a particular kind of experience kind of thing. They started in a particular way. That's kind of how their abilities first manifested, but they were much broader in terms of application. But we don't know, though, because he isn't literally a green seer. He isn't literally a warg skin changer, however you want to call it, is whether his Augustus' abilities are actually restricted to the Corvid uh, genus. Is this actually limited to, you know, magpies and ravens and crows? Or is just this, his, you know, childhood fascination kind of sent him in that direction, but in reality, it is much broader than that. And he, that's, that's a kind of potential that's just waiting to awaken. At this point, we really don't know. No, we don't. But I guess this explains that it first started when he was dreaming, and then it happened when he was awake one time in church. During the whole explanation, um, Penance... Um, uh, really sort of giggles and flirts her way through it. And I can't tell if she's being like just blatantly insensitive or if she's giving Augustus exactly what he needs in this moment, which is I know in your head this is a really, really big deal. And so what I'm going to do is my reaction is going to soften it for you a little bit to make it easier for you to talk about and maybe make it a just slightly less heavy in your subconscious or, your, or um, in your um, as you're thinking about not your subconscious, but as you're thinking about it internally. In answer to your question, I will say yes. 
Yeah, it's one. It's it's one of the two, right? It, it, I think it's got elements of both. What she's saying is literally on paper rather insensitive. Like when she laughs in his face at one point before then telling a joke, it's insensitive, but it's intentionally so. It's meant to take a bit of the air about out, out of what he's saying right there and make it something that's much more manageable and something much more shared between the two of them. As this is your life, this is part of the world. This is part of your life. You don't need to put it on a pedestal. Let's actually talk about it as friends would. And I think that legitimately helps him a lot in terms of coming to terms with it and having someone that he can talk about it with. Yeah. Um, he asked her, if this how it, is this how it works? Which was a very kind of cute question because she then has to explain, well, no people, no two people have the same turn. So, no, it's not really, I mean, it's how it works for you, but not necessarily for everybody else. Um, that's, in, that's interesting, too. Is that, is, is that just because we don't have enough people, enough is that literally true that each one's abilities are entirely unique or is it just happening to be the case because there's just not that many people that are afflicted yet? Who could say both, either way? But that, that, both of those things touch. could be true, right? Yeah, both those things could be true. I think that if I'm if I'm Amalia, I would think right now the evidence that we have suggests that no two turns are unique, but who knows? I mean, sure. we, I, I also find it a little hard to believe that it's just people in in London that got this thing, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. hard for me to believe that, like, in Mumbai, some guy's not, like, levitating a book, you know, after touching it or something. Would um, the government of London care, truly? They're focused at home right now. Yeah, seriously. Um, then Augustus uh, has very legitimate concern. Uh, what happens if I get stuck? And she just laughs, makes a joke about, like, well, I pity the poor magpie. He'd be stuck listening to that crappy sermon you just referenced. Terrible mm -hmm. joke. Um, but he... So oversells so it, in the uh, oversells it, big, big, big guffaw they share there together. Augustus then mumbles, I'm a monster. And then she, she follows up finally getting into the serious gear that I was hoping that she would get into at some point in this conversation and says, you know, you're not though. Like, you know, you're she, not a monster. Right. Um, and that is exactly what he needs to hear at that point. She does this very artfully. To the point that I'm thinking that she's done this for a lot of people in the past. It's not just that she kind of kind of cares for them. They have a nice little banter. She works through this like a craftsman in terms of helping him come to terms with this, making a joke, making it light between the two of them, before bringing it back to the serious kind of emotional point that she wants to end on. That's either good writing on the part of the writers in terms of how that should be structured, or good or good crafting on her part in terms of how she's gone through this conversation many times before. It's a great point, Spencer. She she. We may be meant to think that that's kind of the go-to, right? Like when her or Amalia or maybe even Lucy or some of the, the figureheads there at the orphanage um, meet people the first time who come to the orphanage, right? They're probably having a similar conversation as this. So she's, she's probably got some reps in. Um, she does then, you know, get, sneak in a, a selfish question, which she says, how does it feel to fly? And he goes, it feels like flying. Um, and, I, and I'm not super crazy about the writing there. Um, no, no. Uh, not great. Uh, but you know, whatever, I guess it was supposed to be a cute moment. Um, that's anything else on this scene? Cause this was a big scene. That's a very Joss Whedon kind of way of expressing that point there at the end of it. How does it feel? It feels like flying. It's, it's meant to be just kind of the kind of sarcastic playfulness that he's known for, but it's the lazy kind. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, you know, I understand what, I don't think that like, what, I don't mean to suggest that that was a mistake. I think they wrote it exactly the way they meant to write it. I just am not a fan of that kind of writing. Yeah. Um, cut to Cassini, who shows up to a door. An older lady opens up and says, oh, you have a, you've had a time of it, haven't you? We'll get you some tea. We oh think God. she's found a safe place. This poor woman who's been struggling this entire episode, she comes in and dum, 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 here comes the, um, the sort of tall. I don't know what these people are, but they seem to be tall. They seem to be cloaked. 
and maybe masked. And, and, and if they are masked, the masks look a little bit like a take on like the screen mask. Yeah, it's I'm I'm thinking they're masked. I think they've been referred to as masked figures before, but it's a weird kind of mix between scream and Leatherface kind of mask. It's a creepy look. Uh, what also makes it creepy too is that it looks like she's been kind of purposely corralled in this direction because there's guys with purple armbands out front that seem to be increasingly kind of kind of scare towards the door. And yeah. when, then when she gets there, she's finding that her what she hoped was a place of refuge is in reality a trap. Yeah, and I'm sure that all of that was triggered from. Her, her snitch friend mm-hmm. um, who told the authorities on her. Because I, I don't think that these people were after her before her snitch friend did that. So it, not not a good move there. Yeah, um, put the finger on her, yeah. Bad, bad. Cut to, to Mary and Malady um, uh, oh. talking. And um, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to cut to you to to, ex- to do some um, Malady translate. You would, here we got a new segment. Spencer translates what the hell Malady's trying to say. Um, there's, that's going to be our new segment here on the Nevermore podcast. Uh, we'll start with this one. Uh, Mary is explaining how her career in the theater is going. Malady seems put off by it. Um, she then babbles at some point um, after this to the point that Mary, that Mary has to interject to say, what are you after? Now, what? Now, question for you. New segment here on on Never's More. What is Malady saying to Mary in between these two these two segments? Like you noted, Mary has to like three times try to draw her back to the only thing she knows that they're actually talking about. She has to continually repeat. So about that play thing again, or you know about the whole God thing. She's seizing on the same threads I am to try to make a half lick of sense about what the hell Malady's talking about. Yeah, I've got we... notes. Yeah, yeah, we're. I'm just gonna say we're in. We got like maybe 30 minutes of screen time left. Malady fills up maybe 10 minutes of it, and it is nine and a half minutes too long. It is a lot, a lot of Malady here in the back half of this episode. My my note on this is more Malady. Could we have less, please? That's the main thing I say there. (laughs) Uh, I've got notes on God, demon, song, the woman who sheds her skin, who's coming and wants his song. Gears crushing gears. He means it to hurt. It's this kind. It's all seems to be wrapped around this kind of God delusion thing. That this process of pain, this process of being abused, is all part of God's plan to some end goal. That this suffering is what is actually intended for us to walk the path ultimately to salvation. It is a popular kind of interpretation of you know the pain of the world. It is there. It seems to be one she's seized in to come to terms with. What is a life of abuse that's made more recently all the more unpleasant? But good God, does it go in circles and hoops and loops as she goes through this? Yeah, um, it doesn't. It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. What appears to be, though, and this is interesting, the woman who sheds her skin—if she actually means that as something rather than just this mad drivel that we're getting out of her—it seems to be an element element of prediction that Amalia is coming. She refers to Amalia pointedly in that way and later seems to be specifically expecting Amalia. Is that just a reasonable deduction? Is that a certain element of prophecy on her part? Is that some joining between the two, given their shared history? I don't know, but it becomes a co- it becomes a you know a cogent thought that later demonstrates an element of rational thought and anticipation that we see out of her later that we didn't really know to expect. So, yeah. I don't know. My my theory on that is that she knows a little bit more about Amalia than maybe everybody else does. Because remember that line to the Beggar King, this isn't my face? Um, I think she knows a little bit of... She knows some secrets about Amalia and maybe what Amalia is dealing with um, and, and her powers that everybody else doesn't know. That's my guess. 
It definitely seems the case. It's just a question of whether is she again being annoyingly poetic about how she refers to her, or is there actually something about this whole changing skin, changing face thing? I don't know. I've been currently writing it off as just being annoyingly poetic, but as you've continued to ponder, we don't know the full scope of Molly's abilities yet, much less her history. Yeah, I don't know that I'm... I, I wrote out notes as to try to, to figure out what Malady was talking about here, but I don't think it's really worth going through other than kind of what you pointed later. out, that she she seems to have some connection with God. She seems angry at Mary for having a connection with God herself that is almost undeniable for Malady. She doesn't like that. And then she does seem to be like doing the... the um, the bring it on move with Amalia right. in the conversation. She wants Amalia to come. And then she ends it with, they say you shit when you hang, which, you know, I, again, um, I don't, I think I'm noticing a, a, a something here is I don't, I'm not quite happy. Or I'm not quite enjoying how they try to end dialogue, the, mm-hmm. how the writers try, cause they try to end on something that's kind of like a little light and funny and like, I, I mean, obviously, this is foreshadowing to the scene we get later about the hanging, but like, I think it was also Malady trying to be funny. It's just so phenomenally cringy. Like, it's just really yeah. hard to watch. Uh, that cringy kind of summarizes a lot of these scenes that are involving Malady. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy them. I'm not sure whether it's poor writing or not particularly interesting acting, or it may be perfectly on the nose acting, but it's just crappy characterization. Um, but either way, I these are rapidly becoming for me the nadir of any episodes that they are in. And that holds true here, too. But it, One thing to note there that I did find a little bit interesting is that part of the reason she seems to resent Mary is that Mary embodies a fundamentally different nature of a relationship with God. Is that Mary's kind of what she represents or stands for is kind of implying a certain hopeful and benevolent relationship with God, a kind of caring relationship with God through the nature of her abilities and what that may represent, as which is utterly opposed to what Malady's represents, stands for, and believes about what the nature of being connected to God is. So they're kind of, the, the two are kind of almost morally opposed on that point. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I think we can go ahead. Well, you remember how they said Fred Astaire was like a the triple threat? He could dance, he could sing, he could act? Yes. So this oh, Malady, this Malady <laughs> thing is a triple threat in the other way for me. I don't like the writing, I don't like the story, and I don't like the acting. Like it's the triple threat for me. I, it's, it rounds the bases, Spencer. I'm hitting all the metaphors, but I, I don't like any part of the Malady thing. Um, and I don't. I, it's very unfortunate because as I started this episode by saying I did like this episode a lot better, I am starting to enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. I just fear that they're setting up Malady to be such a big part of it, and we already don't like such the, like the fundamental building blocks of that storyline. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, I, it's going to be a little hard to stomach, um, you know, in later episodes. I think. I think it's, I think it's a fair point, and also, also let me compliment you. Was in no way expecting you to make a Fred Astaire reference to brilliantly prove your point. Kudos, sir. Well done. Thank you. Yes. Uh, the this cultured is man here. For with the people. Cut to Mundy uh, talking to Amalia. I'm, I'm starting to like the Mundy-Amalia thing. Like, we need... Can we get, like, CSI, like, London 1899 with the two of these as a spinoff? I like... I think the two of them solving crimes is just great. I'm enjoying it. Favorite part of the episode. I love the kind of relationship the two of them put together here. I love the banter that they have. I love the teamwork that they put together yeah. here. It... Um, it it is so good. It annoys me that how many different shows within show we get in this that I have to wait to keep coming back to that because that's a touch of something I want to keep coming back to. That's a really that's a really good way of putting it, man. Like, I, I it's starting to be one of those shows where I'm 
I enjoy 30 minutes of it. The other 30 minutes I'm waiting for that 30 minutes, you know, it's yeah. just good. And that's kind of, that's kind of hard. Um, go ahead. Which, which is a shame because it's a damn good 30 minutes. The two of them, we get a lot of repeated scenes with them as they're slowly putting together crime, as they're slowly putting together a relationship, as they're slowly even getting to know each other. And it's really well done and fun. The two of them have some excellent... I don't really, When I say chemistry, I don't mean it in the romantic sense. But uh, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They do have chemistry, but like, don't let's not ship them. This is not a shipping no. situation, Spencer. It's just the two of them seem to get along, and they have a budding, they have a respect for each other. That like pretty quickly that they developed. Let me reassure you, as a person who is new to the shipping concept, saying that this is not a shipping situation is the worst way possible of trying to defuse the fandom from going there. Uh oh, I might have, I might have, I might have accidentally started a shipping situation with the two of them. I don't think that's where this needs to go. They just seem to have respect for each other. Absolutely. Uh, Mundy's trying to get a handle on her ripplings, which you know, to give Mundy a little credit, it is complicated. <laughs> he sort of summarizes it by saying they come and go, and she doesn't really know when they're going to come true or not. And Amalia then hits him with, "quote Every day is an adventure." Um, Mundy then asks a great question. Can you change the rippling after you've seen them? I think he says something wonderful pretty, question. Pretty pretty good. He's like, well, "Can you can you see the beach and go to the forest? Like can you yep. can you change it after you see it?" And she just she says no, but she says no in a very like, mm, "No." And I would have had follow-ups there if I was Monday. <laughs> her her no is so flippant it almost makes me doubt it. it it's so just casual. No, nah, that doesn't work that way. It's like you really just missed that one out of hand. I want to believe you, but yeah, I've got questions three through 19 I want to get back to now. Yeah, I honestly think she doesn't know. I think it was a way of getting out of the, bailing out of the conversation. I don't think she knows if she can change it. Well, it's also, I mean, she, we also have seen before that she's, you know, working under a massive weight of responsibility and guilt that she's barely really being able to manage. Thinking that you can't alter the future may be a necessary part of her coping with her abilities, because if she can... Dear God, the responsibility that falls upon her with respect to that. If she's just merely yeah, seeing sure. something that's ordained, she can remove herself from it. If she can alter that, the entire playing field changes. Well, she be, I mean, she literally starts to become God because she can yes. see this is what, this is what, like, I, I'm, I'm, let me start, like, moving the chess pieces around because I know how the future is going to play out if I don't. Like, that. That's a, that's another level of power right there. Absolutely. And... What this scene now lets us as the audience know, and I like how they've let us come to, uh, you know, come to knowledge about this, is that the little flashes she's been seeing are flash-forwards of what is now going to happen next. Of, apparently, yeah. punching the ever-loving shit out of Malady in a dank cellar somewhere. Well, I did score the first two rounds, 10-8, 10-8 Malady, so um, I don't think Amalia <laughs> they're, liked that they're very back. much when she listened to the podcast. So uh, they're reviewing a rippling she had when she's punching Malady, Amalia uh, says... Um, when it happens, she mostly feels calm, um, that she's had more experience with violence than she would like. And Mundy posits if that's due to her late husband. Um, Malia mm -hmm. doesn't seem to want to answer. Um, and I think Mundy immediately acted very well by Ben Chaplin here. Cause I think Mundy's like, whoa, oh, hold on. I think I hit too close to the truth there. And he bails out of that real quick. I'm glad you mentioned the acting there among the acting of the, of the various extensive cast we have in the show so far. I think these two are the best. And I think that's part of the reason that the scene, that the scene works so well between them is that the actress, I'm blanking on her name, but the actress who plays Amalia is so delightfully understated. Laura she Donnelly. Can, she can convey a lot of emotion without raising her voice or without seemingly just ex over expressing. And Frank Mundy too. He's an interesting character where a lot, he's got a lot of barriers, but like you said, when, every now and then he really shows a lot of humanity and a lot of nuance to him that I really appreciate. I think that's partly reflected on excellent acting going on there as well. 
For sure. Amalia is discussing uh, Malady, how she probably was exposed to violence and intense religiosity when she was younger. Mundi says Malady is mocking God and religion. Amalia basically says no, that it, it, in her interpretation, Malady just really like loves God, maybe, and is trying to please him in her own weird way. Mundi then asks where Mary fits in all this, and Amalia says she doesn't think she really does. Quote, Mary makes you feel love which is terrifying for someone like her, which I think Amalia like has the, 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 the finger on the pulse here of Malady pretty well in this conversation. Um, Malady felt a power greater than pain. Do you think Mary might cure her? Is it ever that simple? How much is Amalia not only talking about Malady here, but talking a little bit potentially about herself? Because that, that seemed like a bing, bringing out of your own kind of demons kind of way of explaining the situation. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's a there's an implication there that yeah, she could be talking about herself for sure. Yeah, I don't know if she's like overtly doing it, but yeah. Particularly with the framing that they gave us, because she immediately offers this interpretation the moment after Frank Mundy makes a reference to, you know, her ex-husband and the abusive relationship that she had with him kind of thing. And she describes Malady in the kind of confines of being in love with your abuser, the abuser in that situation being God. Yeah, I'm starting to prep our notes for our segments, and one of our uh, one of the questions we got here from a, from a listener uh, corrects me in the pronunciation of penance. It's actually penance. She says it's supposed to no, be penance. No, we, we pronounce it like Southerners. Damn it. Okay, so I'm going to try to. Say, I've already like ingrained myself as penance. I'm going to try to say penance going forward. Uh, I, I think this person's probably right. Like when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, probably so. Uh, I'm not sure that I can remember them saying her name on screen. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to try to say penance. We'll do. Um, cut to penance and Augustus talking. And um, Spencer, would you like to give us a recap of penance, uh, penance's explanation no. of electricity, please? <laughs> God damn it. It is. She, she's essentially <laughs> doing a junior level physics class description of potential energy and, you know, entropy. This is what she's doing is saying, you know, I'm type, I'm tap. She's almost describing the force. She really is almost she, describing the she's force. She's basically describing the force. It's in and around everything. It touches all things. It, this it flows is, through you. I, I, <laughs> it's just as vague as Yoda talking. It, it, and I can, I can buy that because it's an entirely different setting. It's an entirely different setting. I like it in the for, I like it in Star Wars because it's meant to be ambiguous. It's meant to be mythical and mythological. It is meant to be tapping into some kind of universal fabric kind of thing. Rather than this, whose abilities are meant to be, you know, kind of scientific or at least reasoned or capable of being understood. Hers are so willfully amorphous, I feel like, that they exist for the purposes of plot. They're keeping them vague so that she can invent the necessary thing that makes the plot happen episode by episode. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that and thought, yep. Uh, Spencer is hating this. Um, so Augustus much. compares it to some bird phenomenon. Is Augustus going to be that guy? Yes. So like when you're at a party and you're like, yeah, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I work in contracts. I mean, basically what I do is, oh, yeah, well, there's a there's a bird that does that. Like, do you think that that's like kind of the guy that he's going to become? Compare everything to bird guy? He Yes. And I, uh, yes. It's a bad look a no- for him. And I'm rooting for him. It's bad look. Yeah. It's one, it's one of those people I sympathize as, as a socially awkward person in the world, but you often find a central thing that you can, can kind of like tie things back to to be, take part in conversations just so you feel comfortable. But his thing is birds, and that's a stretch in almost any conversation that you were in <laughs> to really tie them I, back to bird behavior. I do find it funny that like you 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 regularly refer to yourself as someone who's like not good talking to women, not good talking, socially awkward. Yet you're like 
you're a podcast host. So, you know, guess, what did you do? I guess it doesn't matter. I when it's blame just you. It's easy when it's just the two of us talking, I guess, maybe. Uh, Harriet busted in to uh, explain that some of the men, Harriet is the, the, the in, um, Indian lady. Um, mm-hmm. She busted in to explain that some of the men have been wagering on if Lucy can break the statue of Aphrodite in the garden. And um, Lucy is down from when we see her. She's directly disappointed. <laughs> that yeah, and it's absolutely something I'd be doing at that party, by the way. I mean, first off, this concept that I would be at all. Scared of the touched people, I, I that would be out the window Absolutely as soon as they not. came in, and I would be like, "Wait a second, what can you do? Why can you just sort of break things when I touch it?" It's like, I how fast I was doing the math before I start going. Can you break that? Can you break that? Uh, Let's try uh, that. <laughs> it's a particularly dangerous thing because it's the perfect kind of crowd build ability. Is that once somebody reveals that to a group of people, they are going to start working off each other to make the largest thing possible blow up before they're done. It would feed on the crowd quickly. And clearly the statue of Aphrodite is now on the chopping block. In comes Lavinia and we have a very um, tropey scene, which is you have young, socially awkward guy finally finds someone um, that he likes, uh, not in the same social class as him. And you mm-hmm. have the authority figure in his life coming in and dropping the hammer and saying, you know, we, we don't get with the likes of them. And, um, you know, and it, it and the trope continues through the episode where then he takes that advice and then he lashes out at her and then she gets upset by it. I've probably seen this story in a hundred different television shows or movies. Um, and that's exactly what it is. Lavinia just comes in basically and says, hey, look, uh, everybody's, you know, kind of talking about the two of you in here together. You can't be with her because she's touched because she's lower, lower class than you. Because she's Irish, man. Yeah, she, yeah, she's Irish. She does say, you know, I guess, you know, you're not really built to have a mistress. I mean, she, she, one thing I like about Lavinia, she's eminently practical. She's like, well, you could, I guess, just have her as a mistress, but you're not really built that way. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't marry her. So why don't you just like get, tell her to buzz off basically. Which, like you said, it isn't, it is the kind of conversation that would have been very, it's very error appropriate, but because that's a kind of error appropriate thing that would resonate with modern audiences, Every single period drama has to have this conversation at least once, maybe twice, maybe make it a key theme of the entire damn series. So it's gotten tropified to all hell, given our love of period place dramas sit during this particular period and era. Uh, so I, it does annoy me to a certain degree. One of the ways that it's fun to frame it, though, and this really kind of hinges on what your perception of, of you know Lavinia is at this point versus where it necessarily ends up in the episode is how much is she speaking for the benefit of her brother and her family, or how much is she necessarily speaking for the benefit of... How are we agreeing to pronounce her name? Um, Penance. Penance, thank you. I'll, I'm going to forget that in five minutes. She's not um, at all speaking for the penance, I don't think. Wait, um, in, in that's a, my in guess. A, in a different kind of show, or a different kind of show, and a different kind of person saying it, she might have been, in the sense that the future you're painting would be purely for your own benefit and offer her no hope of future progression and probably only offer her an opportunity to being ostracized. But I agree, Lavinia is in no way going at it from that perspective. Her perspective is, you will protect the family name, damn it. I know you're not emotionally capable of doing that, so I'm browbeating you right now. Yeah, and it's like, um, I also, so if I have a complaint about this episode, it's that... Um, Just one? Um... <laughs> yeah, I might have Sorry. a few. <laughs> I'm going to say maybe my number one, other than way too much malady, is um, is that we're getting a lot of storylines that are familiar to me that I can get, I can buy into, that I'm totally down with. And this one, you know, this sort of like Augustus and Penance having this like burgeoning romance, and then it being struck down by Lavinia, and then you know, 
Augustus acting out and then Penance like dealing with the fallout of that. I'm 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 cool with that. Like I'm give me give it to me. Like sure. it's fine. My problem is that I don't know if they felt like they needed to like they were worried that this show was going to get canceled or something because it's it's happening very very fast. Like yeah, like you know, for even Lavinia to have the conversation with him to say, hey, this is like too much and you need to basically cast her off. I would hope that that conversation would come after more than like 10 minutes of discussion, like around a cocktail party. Like it, it just seems to happen very fast. And then him acting out and telling her to fuck off basically happens very, very fast considering the fact that they've had like, you know, two and a half minutes of conversation with each other. And then her crying about it and being super upset seems unearned too. So it's like, it all happened very fast. It's very compressed, but bear in mind, this is the same episode where we have Lavinia revealed as possibly the big bad of the series at the end of it. They are accelerating everything more than they need to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anyway, anything else on that? No, no, no. I, I, it, it is a necessary conversation that I very much agree doesn't feel like it needed to happen here and now and probably would be more effective if they'd spaced it out for later, given that we yeah. got a whole season to work with. They should have had like two or three more episodes of them two like sneaking off and having a conversation, maybe yeah. like a, maybe steal a kiss, you know, in an alleyway or something. And sure. then Lavinia comes in with the hammer. Right now it seems a little bit an overreaction. And then it also seems like an overreaction from Penance that she gets, she takes it so hard when he basically says, Hey, I can't talk to you anymore. I got to go talk to my real friend. But it, it almost feels self-congratulatory on the part of the part of the writers that they're assuming we're already so invested in this that we're going to be you know, like especially crushed that Lavinia is doing it. It's like, you know, they're fun, but they've been ten minutes of fun. Yeah, Give they just like started three- talking to each other like in one party. Like, yeah, it's it's just too fast. But anyway, we end yeah. with, um, you know, Augustus starts to he he gets as soon as Lavinia drops the hammer, he's on the clock for a bender. He just starts hitting the brandy and champagne hard early and often, and he's just beating it. And uh, he then tells her basically, I can't talk to you anymore. I gotta go talk to my quote real friends, which seems to crush penance. Um, uh, Lucy comes in and is like, hey, look, we'll catch a ride. We'll, we'll Uber. You take the Tesla back You need to go home now, yeah. Yeah, and she does, and she um, she speeds off, and she's crying as she leaves, and I just felt like that was a bit of an overreaction. I, I very much agree. Also, fun question. Did we ever really see how Pimrose got there? We saw, you know, uh, Penance carrying two people with her that were kind of hanging off the sides of her one-person car, but Primrose can't fit, and she was not there. So I mean, it's kind of like... Do you ever seen when they're building roads and they they have those big flatbed trailers with the big pieces of concrete on them um, that are are like strapped in that are going down a highway and it's like oversized load across the back? That's what I'm envisioning, like a big flatbed trailer with with our poor, poor girl Primrose just, you know, fetal position on that thing strapped in big oversized load, uh, 12 horses, 12 Clydesdales. And that's how they get her get her down the road. This, this is the, you know, they've caught uh, King Kong kind of thing, and they've, you know, captured the alligator in Lake Placid kind of thing, and they are hauling them back for exhibition. This is how you think she's being brought to this event? How else? I'm they with you. I don't Cannon. think there's Cannon. any other Cannon way. Now. Um, as, as our girl Penance is peeling out in the Tesla, Augustus goes to the, the corner um, where he could get, you know, in a corner room where he gets a, a window, and he can kind of see as she's driving out, and then he, whoop, Works into a, a, some sort of bird and he follows her for a little while. And, and I think that we're starting that. I think that was like the show telling us, okay, now, now penance is obviously going to be mad at him and he's going to feel like he can't talk to her, but they still have this like unrequited love thing. And this is how he's going to watch her. He's going to watch her by right. uh, the bird. And, you know, eventually 
You know, we're going to get this scene, Spencer. Penance is going to be doing something, and she's going to look up and see a bird, and she's going to go, is it? Could it be? And then she's going to start to wonder, is he watching me? Is that is that him? Is right. that him? And that's and already, what we're getting. And they're already giving you a seed of it that we could audibly hear the uh, what whatever kind of corvette it was, crow, raven, whatever else, caw while she's driving away in yeah. the car. That she could hear it. She couldn't process it. She wasn't thinking about it. But as they get more, she's going to tie it all together. Oh my God, he's been following. He's been following. He does me love a, me after all. Yeah, in a non creepy stalker way. It's all. It's all good. Yeah, absolutely. Cut to Amalia and Mundy talking. He's sharing what he knows about Melody's gang. Apparently, they had a very nice suite for a while. This is this is what I would be using my turn for right here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, they <laughs> had an extremely nice presidential suite for like three weeks because the colonel's turn is he convinced you of anything he says. And uh, he kept telling the manager that he was Prince of Wales, which, you know, shout out to the colonel. I'd be doing the same exact thing and I'd be I'd be in some baller suite myself. Well, you want to do shout-outs? Shout-out to Mundy with his legwork he's been doing as part of this investigation. Because previously, they've been kind of writing off, ah, you know, he's been unsuccessful, isn't doing much. This man's put together an impressive amount of research and data about where they've been, how long they were there, about who was present, about yeah. what they did. He's put together a very thorough investigation. Kudos. This man's a competent detective. Yeah, for sure. He is. He's, he's more than just the, the drunk who was left at the altar who likes to beat up the suspects, I think. That's what we're, we're, we're getting. Is there, there's more to him than that. It's While she keep... was... What? It's interesting they keep mentioning the drunk beating up the suspects thing because they've told us that like four times. We haven't really seen it yet, even though it's his, you know, apparently either reputation thing. in London. Either thing. We haven't seen him beat up beat up a suspect. We haven't seen him drinking either. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's uh maybe he's trying to win back Mary. He's on the he's on the straight and narrow for a while. <laughs> uh, while she was talking, she got another rippling uh, of her punching malady. Then she asks to, uh, it, but I guess when she gets this rippling, she also um, sees maybe. Um, the area that they are like she gets a little bit more to it than that and it's um like the the steam pump distribution uh room center yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> which, which is green screen pipes all around which apparently is a prior place that they've been based before because it's got an exact picture of it up on monday's big wall yeah uh then she has to use the bathroom she walks out she gives a picture of the steam room uh with green pipes to my new favorite character desiree and tells her to give it to Monday when he comes out looking for it a bit. And to, quote, keep his men quiet. So she, placing a lot of trust in... She could have just... Couldn't she have just told Monday, hey, I'm going to go to this place. Why don't you just show up with your men like 15 minutes later? Yes! <laughs> Dear God, yes! She's placing what? a lot of trust in Monday that he's going to understand her sort of cryptic movements here. This is the... The only reason I don't find this just absolutely inherently... Un, just like teeth clinchingly frustrating is that I feel it is in character from what we've seen of Amalia previously that she would do this that she'd want to go alone that she'd want to go first but the trouble is that Mundy's already bought in with Amalia he no. trusts her he's sharing his investigation with her and he trusts that she has these ripplings he there we have seen nothing in how he's interacted with her to suggest that if she would have said I've had this rippling you need to show up 15 minutes later he wouldn't have done exactly what she told well, him to do it is 100% monstrously stupid that she does this and it damn near gets people killed it is really really dumb and really inappropriate that she does this only way I'm giving it some degree of credence is that it feels a bit in character that the character would do this even as you've noted it's completely illogical that she does so here's the scene I want to see that they did not give us I want to see Mundy walking out and be like, where the fuck is she go? Like, and going up to Desiree. And then I want to see how he talks to Desiree. Because remember, he had that scene with her where <laughs> he knows that if he talks to her, he's going to he's gonna say too much. So is it like this sort of like hand over eyes, like approach, like very slowly? <laughs> hey! 
Hey, Did you she leave a note? Hey, Just you, like, will you tell her that I said, you know, like talk through an intermediary type thing? I want to see how he talks with Desiree now. Paper airplanes. Writes it on notes and throws it at her. That's what I'm expecting now. <laughs> uh, cut to Penance on the way home. She gets stuck behind a horse. Uh, apparently, Penance um, can can uh, devise, create, manufacture an electric car in 1899. Horn a little too much for her, so she's going to have to use the separate trumpet. Um, that's that's a little that's technology a little bit too much for for Penance. Can I strongly recommend that she add a certain feature to her car that is plainly not there? A mud screen. Any kind of windscreen. Her dress is way too pristine for her to be traveling around those streets of London for more than a couple hours without just getting utterly caked with everything that is London. Soot, debris, shit, Horseshit, mud, yeah. all kinds horseshit. of things. She is way too clean for that kind of car to not have any kind of barrier to block that from her. It's a... That is... I'm jealous of that point. That's the type of shit I like to point out, Spencer. Um, That is a very good, very good point there. Um, Yeah, she definitely needs a screen. And if she doesn't have a screen, she should at least have goggles because otherwise her face is just going to be lit up. Oh, yeah. Just the the sheer amount of coal soot that's going to be in the air as she's going about. She should be like, you know, permanently dyed every time she goes out in this car. Yeah, cut to Edmund Haig with Cassini. So this is where Cassini went. Um, she's t- Edmund Haig, for if you've forgotten um, from that frenetic first episode, is the oh, is oh, the yeah. evil doctor with the big vroom, vroom, with the you know the big drill he's putting pa- in their head. Yeah. Um, she's all tied up. He's about to start working at her, and someone comes in and says the boss is coming, which seems to startle Edmund. Cut to Amalia, who's in some steam room somewhere. Cut to Augustus, who is one on one. jumping fast. Well, that's what the show's doing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's what I mean. We really get nothing more than Amalia is walking down a hallway, and it's clearly a steamer. I'll let you jump quick, but just one little point: uh, Doctor Haig may be another one of my least favorite characters in the show, just because of oh, how just for sure he is on the booby prize list. Absolutely, just making he's got sure. he's got some he's got some competition, but he is up there. I could do without this guy. One thing to note, just about his character, I didn't notice the first episode, that he is distinctly pointedly American, which is unique for the show. That he has a pro- he has a pronounced, clear American accent. So that's interesting enough. But the character is just... I'll give this show this, all right? You're, you're, you're showing London in 1899. You're going to give us an American character... And you made him educated. I, I, thank you. I mean, that is that is absolutely an upset. I mean, you would mm. think that the American at that time uh, interacting with the British would be shown as some sort of backwoods country folk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so at least he's educated. I mean, he is yeah. evil, but he's educated. He's the evil scientist kind of educated, but sure, kudos, where we'll take it. Cut to Augustus, who is, um, uh, he shows up to the Ferryman's Club, it looks like. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, yeah. it is very. Well, you know what, it's exactly what I envisioned it. You know what Sex Clubs reminded me of? Remember the one from Succession? Yeah, I do remember from that uh, Prague, the episode Prague. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when, when, they, when they when they take uh, I'm blanking the name of the character. We relook those when we watch for the next season. But when they take one of them for a bachelor party, they take them to this kind of weird sex club. It's almost the exact same place they go. It's a cl- like a closed loop system. Oh, God, no, I didn't need that reference again. <laughs> Cut to Amalia. She's in the steam room with dark dark green pipes. She's wearing the goggles, which becomes very important later. She takes a turn and bonfire whoosh, lets her know she's going the wrong way. So she's clearly being steered, and she seems okay with that. Mm-hmm. 
Cut to the Ferryman's Club, and oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, Spencer, HBO needed to fill up those nudity bars. He is greeted by Hugo. What is what has happened to Hugo? Hugo is wearing like a gown He's wearing and like a gown. makeup. It seems, and he seems drunk. Uh, what? what the hell kind of club owner is this guy? I wanted to ask you about the makeup because that guy's caked with makeup, right? Yeah, he's got a lot of makeup on, and he, he like, got, he's wearing like a ladies' nightgown. He, <laughs> he's strange. He got dressed for this occasion, and I don't know what occasion he thinks this is, but apparently it's that. Because and, and he has the gall to call out uh, Augustus for being drunk, which I thought was like you know a little plot pot kettle situation. <laughs> well, to be fair, there's levels of, be, of, be, of being able to handle your booze. This man, they're both drunk, but what it took what it took to get them there is a remarkably different thing. Yeah, Hugo's been drunk. I mean, he we already see that he wakes up with wine in the morning, and uh, and Augustus has been pounding. I think they said brandy. I think is what he what he smelled yeah. of. He'd been pounding brandy. He he, um, he, had, like, he had like two on the other hand, uh, uh, you know. Um, Hugo's Hugo. been, has been essentially drinking since the age of eighteen, roughly nonstop. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, he he is in. He does at least seem, while he looks strange and he looks very different than we have seen him before, he does at least seem to be in his element. He seems to be having a lot of fun. They look at a performer, and Augustus immediately immediately realizes she's touched. This confuses Augustus and the and the audience. By the way, it confuses all of us too, uh, because the last episode Hugo didn't even seem to know who the touched were. Uh, he seemed like I think I said he was like the guy writing the book report when he didn't read the book, sort of deal. Like, well, you know, I don't know. Like they're different. They're uh, you know uh, like that sort of deal. Now all of a sudden he knows enough about him. He's got him employed in the Ferryman's Club. And he's implying that this is new too. That this is that he like did a complete 180 and saw an investment potential after the massacre happened. Which amazing, this guy. So th- th- let me. Here's what. Here's what I'm supposed to understand about Hugo. He goes to the. He goes to the opera. He's in the back hooking up. All hell breaks loose. People start dying. The the big Jack the Ripper serial killer runs right by him, mm-hmm. and his mind goes to, I could hire some of these for my sex club. <laughs> Hey, the man just read Dracula, the mixing the horror and the sexuality in an inherent theme. He got ideas. Unbelievable. But anyway, uh, he does explain that, you know, that the, the opera opened his eyes. He saw an investment opportunity. He explains that he needs a little small investment from Augustus. How much is it? Whoop, zero dollars. But he explains that he needs Augustus's name. Bidlow on the contracts lends legitimacy. And you can imagine what Lavinia might think of this. Well, you know, in terms of his asks, money would have been a much smaller ask than this. Being a behind the scenes backer. Oh yeah, backer. for sure. And he knows that though, right? Because he's been prepping yes. Augustus for this. We got the little conversation with the with the lady who, oh, you don't have to put the maid's outfit on. Oh, oh, you are the maid. That 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 scene, if you remember. Yes. Um, but yeah, we, they were prepping us for this. That he he's been grooming Augustus for. I need a partner, but not for money. I got money. I need somebody to give this this sex club legitimacy. And it seems Augustus is kind of into it. It At seems least for like now, he, yeah. Uh, you know. He, to just make sure that he's, you know, fully enraptured with the idea, we have Hugo, you know, use his two best saleswomen to, you know, further bring him home to the point. But I did not expect Augustus to go in the back with these ladies, but he did. Uh, it was a little surprising for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about that, but it happens. Um, oh, it happens, huh? Uh, and um, so <laughs> we uh, <laughs> use the present tense, Spencer. Uh, so Hugo does give a line though that I really enjoyed here potential line of the episode we're the second sons you and I worse my brother is dead and yours is a woman <laughs> pretty good it's a good line I like that one a bit yeah, yeah. Um, 
cut to the steam room. Amalia walks in and sees Malady, who had put up a literal welcome sign. Which was kind of on the nose because Amalia had literally said like two minutes earlier, why don't you just tell why don't you just put up signs to tell me where to go instead of doing this fire trick? So that was and rather, says, you know, oh, you did put up a sign. And this is the type of writing that I remember from Buffy. Those little like almost like um, anti joke, like kind of close thing. to fourth wall breaking. Oh, yeah. you did do that. Oh, you, like little throwaway stuff like that. That 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 tender memory, uh, tender memory. For me. it, it, It'll be it, interesting to see if we get that writing after Whedon's gone. If if that'll continue, it's it's a very Whedon style of writing of kind of self aware humor. I have always had kind of mixed feelings about it, and this one feels particularly just kind of lazy. But whatever, sure, we're moving on. <laughs> she asks where Mary is, and Malady says she first needs to shed. You need to shed. Melody attacks by throwing one of those flashback thingies, but guess what? Malia has her glasses to help out. She counters and starts to beat the living crap out of Melody. First two rounds, 10-8, 10-8. I'm giving this one 10-9, Amalia. Um, uh, Amalia does win third round. Um, I, I want to get your, I want to get your view as a master of just you know the amount of punishment a human being can take from your years of experience here. Sure. We have a suggestion going later that Melody is a little bit superhuman in terms of the ability, amount of harm that she can suffer while still functioning, but. If she wasn't that, given what Amalia does to her and with the objects she does it with, would a normal human still have a functioning jaw by the time by the time Amalia is done? So maybe not. I had this thought. Maybe not. But I would venture a guess that while this is a magical world, right, and people do have superpowers, there's the alien space came came down, dropped fairy dust, and everybody has superpowers. I still think that Malady has mental illness. I still think she's probably schizophrenic and. Um, schizophrenic people, like not like on the whole, I'm not saying every single one. I'm saying that they, they, they because they're operating sometimes in uh, non real, like they're, they're mixing reality and hearing things and seeing things that aren't there. Sometimes will will tend to have a little bit of a higher pain tolerance. Um, and so, uh, my thought was this might be someone who her mental illness um, predisposes her to being able to, to take a punch because, um, you know, she's her mind is just elsewhere kind of deal. I think that's a reasonable enough interpretation that is in some way limited by what we will see later involving a certain gunshot to the chest. But we'll get there in a minute. No, yeah, that, well, that's different. But I'm talking about during the, during the fight yes, scenes yes, here. But yes, anyway, Amalia yes. clearly wins this round, which she oh, was yeah. just itching for another round, by the way. She could not wait to get her back between the ropes. Um, we hear, um, so then they start talking. <laughs> and uh, Amalia drops this one potential line of the episode all your pain all your rage at some point it's what you are and pain despises hope I know but Mary's song isn't just hope we can gather people like us and make sure your angels can't hurt anyone else mm-hmm. during the back and forth Malady asks if Mary is Amalia's new best friend Amalia I don't know how to do this this riddle me shit it's beneath you um, that, that uh, point, was of order, mm-hmm. point of order point of order uh, gonna have to respectfully disagree with you, Molly. I don't think it's beneath her. I don't think much is beneath the the writing formality. I don't think uh, nothing's below this. Yeah, this is another you know, bout of self-aware humor. I feel, uh, and it's one I can just appreciate more because, man, Amalia, I'm right there with you. This is what needs to be said in this moment of. What the hell are you saying? You just made a Nietzsche quote. I got that much, but then the rest, just just start punching me again, please. Yeah, at this point, Malady motions up, and <gasps> we see that Mary is on a ledge up above with a noose tied around her neck. Malady again says that Amalia is the person who needs to shed her skin. Amalia says, you mean dress? And Malady says, you're friends. So I am just 
all over the place confused here because I thought where we were going with this was Malady had some knowledge about Amalia and the fact that Malady, Amalia like literally is either like changing skin or changing bodies or something um, that would tie in with what she said to the, the beggar king. Yep. Well, now she says you need to shed your skin, and Amalia seems completely confused by what she's talking about. Says, "Do you mean dress?" Because she, lo- you know, famously lost her dress in the last episode, and now she says you're friends. And then it seems to be, well, no. This whole time, what she was talking about is the fact that I guess they were friends when they were kids, and they lost touch. And uh, Malady has been following her Facebook, you know, watching watching her updates. You know, been getting very passive aggressive, and um, you know, is now very upset with her. <laughs> This is this is the Facebook st- fe- Facebook feed stalking friend. It's just unhappy. Yeah, absolutely. With they they lost touch. They used to be best friends when they were like you know like maybe in like sixth grade they said they'll be friends forever. Malady mm-hmm. took it to heart, and now Malady's been just following her on social all this time, and does, she's just really disappointed in the way that Amalia has approached the relationship. Does she still have the left half of the best friends forever necklace that she still keeps with her at all times, kind of thing? Probably. And but they did seem to go by different names back then. I mean, obviously, I would guess this lady didn't go by Malady when she was like in elementary school. But what were the names they said? Um, Molly and Sarah. Molly and Sarah. Yeah. And so Molly is Malady, and Sarah is a Molly. No, no. It's I got that backwards, right? Yeah, I'm I'm guessing that you know Molly Malady refers to Amalia as Molly. Yeah, makes sense. And then, and then Mallory, her real name Sarah. is Sarah. Okay. So I, that's my interpretation. And this confirms in my mind that all of these references to changing faces have just been poetic bullshit. That she's, you know, effectively just kind of, you know, wearing a different mask than she did when she was younger to escape from her prior life or whatever else. And like you said, it really does come across as like the old jilted friend that's disappointed to have been left behind. There's an implication kind of here that that there's some element of a betrayal that something to do with the, maybe the insane asylum that, you know, they may have both been going, but one got away and the other one went maybe, maybe. but it's so hard to tell through all the bullshit that malady says. Well, and if, if that's the case though, we saw malady getting hauled to the insane asylum three years ago, right when all this, all the alien spaceship was going down. And at that same moment, we saw Amalia jumping in the river. So it may very much be that, you know, one got away from what was happening but the reason she didn't really go back or check in was that she was going to commit suicide. And so she has a very valid you know, reason and explanation why she was kind of leaving that part of her life behind. But as you said, we don't get much in the way of details and what we know doesn't necessarily seem to fit or at least paints a really kind of weird schedule. So I'm sure we'll find out more. They're telegraphing this as if it's going to be a central tension to the plot. And I don't think I'm going to like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Amalia then starts to stammer, I didn't, oh God, I didn't know what happened to you. Malady has some sort of weird monologue about being ground up into bits and Amalia mm-hmm. dining on gravy and grounded up bit. I don't know. Moral of it seems to be that Amalia and Malady used to be best friends. But uh, Amalia moved on at some point. Malady concludes with, if she's your new best friend, what about that one? And it, oh, I mean, this scene here. You know, you Ray, you 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 connected the dots before we got here, Spencer. But this really rings of, you know, I am gonna terrorize Gotham, and I've got this my Joker. Is... Fa- this is so Joker, and and it it you know like even with the sp- like oh here's the big reveal spotlight I got your girl up in a you know in a yeah. and then this... even giving the the choice to the to the protagonist here who do you want to kill it's so Joker, dude. 
This is this is even like Jack Nicholson Joker. This isn't even Heath Ledger kind of Joker. It's definitely got elements in terms of the grunge factor, but it is such annoying kind of showmanship. It, yeah, it, this is so on the nose Joker that I find I find it kind of frustrating and can't really take it seriously. So practical point here, question is Malady explains this. So they're both on ledges, maybe two two stories up in this big the big steam room, and they both have a noose around their neck, and it looks like the rope is connected to each other by a pulley in the center. Now, yes. Malady says, shoot one, save the other, shoot me, yeah, they both die. If you shoot one, how does it save the other? I'm a little no. confused on the, how the shooting one saves the other. The only way that works is if, you know, you grab the other person and prevent them from falling, which good luck with that because the other body's gonna fall and that's gonna be the full weight of a body falling. You have to suddenly try to pull the person. I thought pulled killing out one would kill the, I, I didn't understand, like, uh, like yeah, Great visual here, Melody. I'm going to give you nine out of ten on the criminal, <laughs> criminally insane scale here. Well done. Um, yeah, well done. Kudos to you. You clearly worked this all out. But I'm you. You didn't. You did. You you did not stick the landing with the here's a gun. Now shoot one to save the other. Never made any sense to me. It clearly didn't make any sense to Molly either. Because what does she do? Shoots herself. Yeah, she she finds a very much third option kind of thing. Um, yeah, I. I the only way that works is if, A, you either somehow shoot the rope, which, okay, uh, good luck with that, with that kind of pistol during that period, and they seemingly would just push the other person off anyway. Or yeah, B, they just the push lack- the person over the ledge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or you are expecting the lackeys to try to prevent the other person from falling when suddenly the weight of the other body is pulling at the end of their rope, which, again, good luck with that. So I, I don't get it. I, it's perfectly possible Malady didn't necessarily think it through either. It didn't make a lot of sense. Um, it was it was a striking image, though. We did get yes, the sort of was. striking image. And then we did get the sort of like, okay, well, now we know. Malady is in that sort of like criminally, like sort of insane, but in a very showy way. Like you, you don't know. Like you might see like, you know, the next like victim that they they kidnap, like, you know, on hanging by Big Ben or something. Right. Like yes. it's like she's in that realm of criminal now. And how, how many goons does she have in this room? It seems there's like a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people that are apparently under the employ of whatever operation she she is with. Well, she's look, promising. She's she's writing a lot of false checks here. She's promising okay. they'll get they'll get tar, they'll get turned if they just follow her a little longer. Do, do they get workers comp for this kind of job as a hired goon lackey? I'm always uncertain how that works. Yeah, un, unclear what the reporting structure is, but I do hope I'm reporting to Bonfire. <laughs> She seems to be the only no, one with any sense no. in the group. Bonfire is not in management. She is clearly a hired contractor. She gets her 1099, and that's how it works. Gosh, she's the only one that seems remotely reasonable. But anyway, so presented this choice, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but the, but the choice as, as illustrated or as presented to Amalia is you need to kill one. You need to choose your best friend. The other one will be saved. Um, or if you shoot me, then I'll just they'll just kill both of them. Uh, Amalia points the gun to her stomach, shoots herself. Um, this malady freaks out and says something along the lines of, if you, you know, if you die, I can't terrorize you. Basically, I can't, I can't hurt you if you die. You need to, you need to not die. She freaks out. Um, uh, Amalia shoots malady, and I don't know if it's a cap gun. I don't know if it's a bulletproof vest. I don't know what it is, but the the shot seems to do absolutely nothing to malady except knock her back a little bit. This tells me that Amal- that Malady's possible turn is just kind of superhuman endurance or durability because she gets a shot like right through her sternum, right right through her lung, like right here on the right on the right side of her body. It's a 
This is the kind of wound that you die from in that era. And she doesn't even flinch. It knocks her back a little bit and she acts like it's not even a bee sting. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, and then, um, you know, you, you know how like normally you get like, hey, look, we got to go uh, from the from from your from your second in command. Uh, Bonfire doesn't do that. She, she just pieces out. She just, no, she just she just gives you a big, big waff of fire. And that's yeah. that's that's the inclination. All right. We got to get out of here because. Monday is showing up because he he was able to speak um, with the with the poor <laughs> the poor lady <laughs> with and Desiree. If, uh, if he only got the, he got he got the he got the clues. It all worked out. He came with his men and they rushed the place. If only he'd gotten there ten minutes earlier, they probably could have caught the big bad. But oh well, the hero got to have her emotional confrontation moment. Yeah, very strange. Uh, then we cut to Horatio. Oh, uh, and then um, as soon as they take the sock off of Penance's mouth, she screams like, oh, get the doctor. Yeah. It's a pretty important doctor to get, right? Because you got Horatio who's in effect like a, just a healer. Um, and he has used it to fix Amalia. Amalia wakes up. Uh, Penance is yelling at her about almost dying. Uh, you could have died, you crazy person. You know, Amalia mentioned she missed the vital organs. Both Penance and Horatio explained to her that she did not. Um, pretty funny scene there. <laughs> funny she says, line. well, funny it, it was a bad gun. The gun was the gun was crap. That's why. Mm-hmm. Um, Horatio tells her to get some rest now. Days of rest. I'm sure that she will challenge that in the start of episode three. Penance lays down to Amalia and says, there's something about malady. Um... Uh, Penance then says, no, there's loads I'll need to explain, but let's just be alive for a while. And it ends with that. That scene ends with the two of them uh, holding hands, laying in bed. Not not in any sort of sexual way or anything. It's just clear that Penance thought she was about to lose her friend. I'm sorry, man. You're trying to keep on making this platonic, but the fan base is just going nuts with the shipping when it comes to those two. I agree. The show's trying to frame them as just being close friends and platonic, but it's not stopping the fans. This Um, is a shipping situation that the fans are shipping. Oh, the fans are shipping when it comes to those two. Um, but one one thing that with the question I'm curious about your thoughts on. I wasn't expecting the, the name of the doctor. Horace is that his name? Or Horatio? Horatio. Horatio. Horatio Cousins. Great name. Great name. Great name indeed. Uh, I was not expecting his healing abilities to be as apparently uh, as powerful as they ultimately proved to be. Is that Amalia shot herself in the gut? You know, she's bleeding. I think she probably hit a liver or something. Yeah, because they said she hit a major organ. That you, is wouldn't, a, you wouldn't say that about a kidney, right? Because you just take that thing out. Yeah, easy peasy. It looked like to me she was firing through her intestines kind of thing. It wasn't yeah, pretty. Maybe. This is the kind of thing you die from in that day and age, and you die from painfully. The fact that his abilities are able to fix that, to restore that, and prevent an infection in the process, this man has the healing hands of God kind of thing going on. I'm going to disappoint you about Horatio. Are you ready for it? Tell me. We're never going to get a scope to his healing abilities. He's going to be able to heal anybody at any point without explanation, and they likely won't even—they likely won't even show it on screen like this time. It'll likely be an off-screen type of situation. Are you picking up how frustrating I find that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're going to hate it because <laughs> they're going to do this, and it probably is going to be like at the end of the episode, like the heroes are going to go out, boom, big bad, you know, uh, events. They they going out, they're they're having big fights, and then uh, he c- kind of cleans up the mess at the end, and he has a sassy line and says, "Now you you stay in bed, you you know you really need to stay in bed." And then the next episode, well, they're out in the streets again, and, what? and what happens? Ratio has to heal him at the end of the episode. Because that's it's also imminently frustrating because it probably implies he's nothing to be more than a supporting character when as you noted he's one of the more quietly interesting characters we have yet on the show yeah oh for sure i mean i i I like the actor i think he's funny Mm -hmm. um and um i think he's like 
he he's funny in a way like he he physically acts the lines yes. in a way that makes me laugh. I th- I'm buying the chemistry with him and Amalia. I am yeah. very much so. Um, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it's going to disappoint you and a lot of people out there. I already know how this show is going. Oh, We're no. getting no scope, no scope for this guy. Unlimited healing power. It just happens. That's it. We're not going to have to question it. <laughs> not going to have to, but man, am We're I going to constantly. Yeah. Not going to be meant to. Yeah. yeah. Cut to uh, um, USA, USA. Uh, Edmund Haig who's uh, asking somebody uh, if his, how his boss sounded. And the guy's the guy, the guy speaking for all of us, by the way, I don't know, dude, it was a telephone. Like, I don't know. Sometimes when people get loud, get mad, they get loud. Sometimes they get quiet. Like, what am I supposed to like? It was such a like, Great answer that like yeah. cut through the, a lot of the bullshit of the show. I was like, wow, that was like a that's like an actual really astute moment. Like, look, I can't tell if somebody's mad over the phone. Like, how I can't do you tell see their face. This wasn't a <laughs> this wasn't a video call. It's eighteen ninety nine. I'm also, watching it. And I'm like pausing my Apple TV. Like, yeah, the rare cogent point. How about yeah. that? Yeah, that's oh, very good. Also, can you imagine answering that question in eighteen ninety nine? Can you imagine what that connection sounded like? Like, we complained about Apple. You know, the connection between two phones is being kind of shit. But can you imagine? How barely Terrible. coherent that would have been. Terrible. Tin can and string. That's what it is. He's clearly nervous about the boss coming in. Haig explains they have a little miracle. And in comes... It's so Darth Vader. <laughs> Darth Lavinia, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. We have the big reveal. It comes in episode two. I'm a little confused about that. But we have the big reveal. Lavinia is behind... Dr. Edmund Haig, Lavinia is not quite what we thought she was. She is not just the uh, the, the fairy godmother of the orphanage. She, uh, she's got some ulterior motives, uh, and, and some of those don't appear very good. I love your comparisons to Darth Vader, too, because the filmmaking in this scene is straight up when Darth Vader is first revealed, kind of raising him up on the platform thing. There is smoke in there. There is the lighting that's behind her. She's coming down on an elevator kind of thing. It is so aggressively Darth Vader. That's an interesting filmmaking call. Yeah, it's it's Darth Lavinia. um, And uh, he explains that a few days ago, dark is the day they found it, but now ain't we got fun. Um, Lavinia says, you are an American, uh, confounded by the mother tongue. This is not fun. It's war. And we see people working. Um, and they're going about their task rather mindlessly. Ha ha. See what I did there? And, uh, we see Cassini with a big scar on top of her head. And what we are seeing, a little hard to describe. It looks like we might be underground and I'm guessing, positing, this is maybe part of the wreck, um, of the alien spaceship. And it is now... Uh, it's 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 flashing. I don't know. It's making a color of some kind. Uh, some energy is in it now. And he was saying it was dark just a few days ago. <laughs> Trying to piece this together. I mean, my initial sort of like from Jump Street theory is that he's doing something with the afflicted. Um, that is, yeah, I don't know if he's like taking part of their brain or something and putting it on the spaceship, or he's doing something through that medical procedure that is somehow generating energy off of the alien spaceship. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I did say that sentence just then. So I mean, as absurd as that sounds, I did actually say that, and I meant it. <laughs> In all of the shows we have watched, did you ever imagine that that sentence would be used as a description for a scene recap? He's doing something with their superhuman powers through brain surgery that is inner that is providing energy to the crashed alien spaceship. Oof, boy, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the weeds. 
I mean, my interpretation of this scene is, I mean, we don't have much to work with. I agree with you. This seems to be some kind of like core of the alien ship that we saw fly over. It looks kind of similar. It seems like it's still very active and kind of pulsing kind of thing. There, it may, you know, be factoring into the idea that they actually have some hopes that using this kind of core, they can actually intentionally give people powers, give people turns, make them the touched. And maybe that's kind of their hope by which they're doing this. And that could factor into why Lavinia is running the damn orphanage so that she can learn more about them and their abilities so that she can actually weaponize or commercialize this kind of thing. Or so she or has the, a pipe, pipeline to the afflicted to bring to him. Very possible because it appears to be, well... Notably, we see Miss Cassini among the among the workers yes. that are there with a monstrous surgical scar along the back quarter of her brain. I mean, it's, they're drawing the parallels to the lobotomized, like they've yeah. done something to her brain because she's now she's walking around mindlessly, just like moving rocks. Well, it's interesting too because lobotomy is the prefrontal cortex. It's it's severing the connections that are happening in the in the very much the front, the very much the front of your brain between the, the um in, in the frontal lobe between the prefrontal cortex and the anterior region. So it's very much in the front. This way back here doesn't really have much to do with that, but it makes for one hell of like a Planet of the Apes surgical scar kind of reveal moment. And is this being done, like you said, to kind of purposely harvest part of their brains? It's used being to reduce them to mindless working drones that don't complain? If so, why are you using the afflicted for that purpose? Yeah, well, you could just, just, I mean, this is 1899 London. Use poor people. Yeah, use hire the damn Chinese. You got you got options here, people. There's a yeah, lot of there's, there's, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of immigrant populations that people won't miss if you just want to use them and discard them afterwards. But, yeah, absolutely. But but we uh, we are now done with the recap. We are end of episode two. Um, we, go ahead. We we skipped one scene. I want to talk about briefly because they had a fun moment in it. What is it? Uh, fr- uh, Frank and Mary talking. Oh yeah, I didn't care about that scene. Go ahead. Oh, you, okay. you tell me. <laughs> Okay, Frank and Mary basically talk about where they're uh, basically having a talk where Mary's now been rescued. She's going to stay at the. She's going to stay at the at the. Like, they refer to it as an orphanage. It isn't. They're all damn adults, but whatever. It's an orphanage. Uh, she's going to stay the there. B and B. The the X Men. Professor X's bed and breakfast. I like that. That is wonderful. You know, I think they would really get better recruiting if they advertised it as breakfast included. They left that off the pamphlet, and that was a major oversight. Always, she's gonna, always very nice. Always convenient in the morning to have the breakfast. Isn't it ready nice? For you. Yes, it's just lovely. Uh, she's going to stay there because she doesn't really feel particularly safe anywhere. So why not stay with the people that seem to understand better what's going on than anybody else? Their conversation is kind of doing in rounds about what their relationship is, or Frank clearly wants to ask her about what happened even starts to, but she kind of puts him off that now isn't the right time for it. And he kind of, you know, chastened agrees that, you know, can I call on you later? Can we talk about this more thereafter else? But it's kind of a certain element of, they clearly still care for each other, but they're still trying to come to peace with, why things happened the way they did and why they probably won't ever be back together. And they're both clearly friendly. They both clearly still care for each other, but it's not really clear what the next step of that is going to be. But one line I just kind of liked from Frank, because it's that kind of weird line that has a lot of emotion behind it. When he's leaving, he turns to her and says, I'm sorry for your terrible day. And it's a, it's a tiny little line. It's a very kind of almost juvenile kind of statement. But it's that kind of juvenile statement that almost can have more power behind it than something more complex could in terms of expressing that thought. It's just a legitimate statement of empathy that he clearly means, and it clearly is something that really means a lot to her that he said. Here's why I didn't like it and why I would just skip right over it. Mary then responded with, you know, I always thought I'd be the one saying that to you. And you know what, Mary? You know what? You're getting the benefit of the doubt from everybody because you got this magic song. But how about you still can say that to him? You know what? what? You still can say sorry, Mary, what? by the what? way. 
that's I know that the, he was batting way out of his league here. Uh, and even even getting a date with you. But you can still say sorry for leaving you at the altar. I'm completely on the same page with you there. I, I, I fundamentally agree with Mary that right now is not the time for that conversation. She just went through all kinds of hell. Let her come to terms with that first. But he absolutely 100% deserves an explanation. They can't avoid that conversation. She owes him that. She doesn't have to be with him. Absolutely gets to make her own choice, no calls in life. Had all rights to not go through with a wedding, whatever else. But as a person that you cared about, purportedly cared about, purportedly loved, you need to have that talk with them. It's only fair to them, and Frank deserves it. You ready for some life advice with Uncle Lee for all the kiddos out there? Damn straight. I missed this segment. Okay. All right, kids. Um, if, when you're going through life, you're going to have relationships, and you might get in a situation where you're going to get married to somebody you decide not to, and you leave them at the altar. This may happen to you. Um, <laughs> in movies, at least. Yeah, sure. It may happen. Regardless of your your reasoning, you may have very good reasons out there for leaving somebody at the altar and not getting married. You have to give them an explanation. I mean, this is this is one of my universal rules. If you leave someone at the altar, Spencer, it doesn't matter what your reason is. You have got to give them that reason. You can't just like haul off and never talk to them again. Unacceptable. Yeah. Only only Unacceptable. Julia Roberts. Karma's gets... going to get you again. Karma's going to get you. Only Julia Roberts in movies gets away with that shit. That's not something that happens in the real world. You've got to have that conversation. And in this situation, Mary's only getting away with it because she's just like astonishingly gorgeous. If if we had learned... <laughs> she if falls the out audience, of near-death experience. Come on. Whatever. If we had learned, if the audience had learned that Mundy had left her at the altar, do you oh, understand God. how fast all of the Nevers fans out there would be on Mundy's ass? Nobody gives a crap that she did it. It'd be the easiest way to frame him as a permanent villain in the minds of the fandom if he'd done that. Yes, it is a bit of a double standard going into play here. But it also yeah. could be a certain... I think in some ways we're almost more critical of this scene because with every other time they've done this, they've done that conversation happening in the same overly, you know, chalked full episode. So the fact they're delaying this one out just frustrates us all the more given that they haven't done that with anything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Kiddos, Uncle Lee's here for you. If you have to leave somebody at the altar, if you have to, <laughs> you got give reasons. them an explanation after. And by the way, if you think I was wrong about anything I just said there, you know, I'm just, I'm just fucking around. Just, um, just, <laughs> it's almost like factoring Sorry. into your Winston. Your, it's, it's almost like factoring into your Winston Churchill that if you have to kill somebody, it costs you nothing to be polite. If you have to leave somebody at the altar, it costs you nothing to explain why later. Just let them know. Just give them, yeah. give them a phone call. You know, Leave this a is card. a phone call. And I know kids kids nowadays, you don't like the phone call. I understand. This deserves the phone call. I'm going to help. It's another thing from Uncle This Lee. isn't a text if moment. you leave somebody at the altar, <laughs> this is not a DM situation. You have got to give them a phone call. No, no. Come on, dude. I think this merits like an Instagram message. I think that's really all you really get out of this. <laughs> that's what a DM is. I know. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> I thought you were I thought you were confused about Instagram. No, I know you're I, not on Instagram, so I was just I was wondering you, if you, you were really... You, you, you were you were mocking the concept, and I was saying, no, this is very much that level kind of thing. Okay, I didn't I didn't know how, how familiar you were there I'm with, with, you. The, with the knowledge uh, on Instagram. Uh, for, for anybody out there who's trying to find Spencer on Instagram, you can quit looking. You ain't gonna find him. <laughs> Good advice. Yes, <laughs> have an account. Right. You'll never find it. <laughs> you're never you're never gonna find Spencer on Instagram. All right, so here we go. We are done with the recap. We are going into our segments. Our first segment is. Best line of the episode. I and I alone remember a best line of the episode. Spencer will supply me with some nominations. I will designate the best line of the episode. Then we will go to our favorite character arcs. And then we will award the booby prize for the least favorite character arc. Um, Spencer, do you want to jump into best line of the episode? 
I do, and I felt like this was a more quotable episode than the last one was. So I do have a it few was. potential entries. Okay, fire away. Uh, first one. Uh, this is the conversation they're having when Frank Mundy and gang are kind of raiding the orphanage, or raiding the bed and breakfast. Sorry, i got to keep it right. Right marketing. Uh, of when um, Julia, I think it's Julia, says to her, um, Frank Mundy, you're the one that likes knocking around, su- knocking suspects about, even though they's as innocent as Christmas. What do they do to set you off? They call me Frankie. I like that line. That's a good way of shutting up that conversation. For sure. Pretty good. Pretty good. Go ahead. Uh, you want me to keep, just keep going? Or are you going to do Yeah, you do yours, this? and then I'll, I'll see how many you hit uh, and okay. add any, any that I, I have. Uh, a line between Amalia and, you know, Frankie. Uh, it got caught on something like Cinderella's shoe. Please tell me you haven't been trying it on on every girl in the kingdom to see who it fits. Enjoyed that kind of little playful banter. Pretty good. Uh, line from Lavinia. Uh, it's a pointed... This is something that uh, Penance needs to understand when it comes to Primrose. When a kitten reaches 10 feet, they call it a tiger. Good point. This is, we can't, though she is very much still a prim, a prim little girl, she's a little girl writ large. <laughs> writ large, man, you're on fire. Uh, let's see here, what other ones I got. Um, one, one from Lavinia, it's society, doing nothing is how we panic. Great line. Yeah, very good. Uh, I'm off to drink lunch was hilarious, and I had to pause to laugh that one through. That was strong, and like you don't you if you weren't watching it with the the subtitles, you might not have heard that one. That's a really good line. They should have had that when they were doing like posts on that. They should have made that a little louder. Another one from Lavinia. Lavinia had a few good lines this episode. Uh, Gilbert Madison and I agree on almost nothing. It's the bedrock of our friendship. I have friendships like that, and they're some of my closest friends. So I'm completely there with you on that summary of that kind of relationship. Uh, Strom Thurmond and Ted Kennedy as you summarized that was a perfect way of describing that Um, this one as you said it was a dumb joke but it was a a purposefully dumb joke well if you're up there pity the poor magpie that has to listen to that that sermon it was a funny line from Penance I liked that quite a bit Uh, Uh, work with me you don't have to agree you just have to hear them (laughs) a couple more I got one Um, this from Amalia I do have a mission I didn't ask for it I'm not cut out for it but it matters and it requires sacrifice that was fun because she didn't even mean to say that too it was flowing out of her due to Desiree Uh, I missed the vital wait a second no that's not that no that was um, she said this she said this right before she shot herself oh uh, you're right yeah gotcha okay the uh, funny line you already mentioned. I missed the vital organs, you idiot. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Oh, I thought either you don't know how anatomy or you don't know how to aim. Well, it's, it's a bad gun. It's a funny line. That was a good exchange. Very strong. And I, again, I liked the line of "I'm sorry if you're a terrible day." That's the kind of line that a lot of people actually just want to hear said with empathy, and he says it that way, and it clearly is meaningful. Got any others, sir? Uh, Mary, you know, I always thought I'd be the one saying that to you. Um, in response to that, I'm sorry about your terrible day. Um, this is not fun. It's a war. I, I, I actually did not particularly like that line. That, uh, was, that, that was the purposely kind of, let's think of something dramatic to end an episode on kind of thing. Um, so here's going to be line of the episode. You ready for it? I'm ready. Line of the episode, the Nevers episode two is... All your pain, all your rage, at some point, it's what you are. And pain despises hope, I know. But Mary's song isn't just hope. We can gather people like us and make sure your angels can't hurt anyone else. Now, look, is it the best line we've ever heard in popular media? Of course not. But I'm still 
it, we're still in the introductory phase of this show. I'm still trying to figure out what, what it's gonna be. lines are going to be important. Because if you've been with us on the GOT Got Questions podcast or Mangum Talks TV podcast, and you know this segment, you know Spencer's supplying me with lines. A lot of times we like to nominate fun ones, ones that we find funny or ones that we find interesting. But what I usually select is something that gives us an indication of what the writers are thinking, what they're trying to do with the show. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought maybe this is it. I thought it was we're trying to establish Amalia is not just the good guy. She also has some empathy here for Malady and trying to give us an indication of why Mary's song is so important. And maybe it's because it can be, like you said, the, sort of the siren song, right? It can be, it can bring every, let's bring everybody under this big umbrella and we can start to take care of all these people um, who are touched and are now ostracized from society because of it. It, it, I, I often bring the lines that I find are really written, but in terms of the parameters for what wins this segment, I absolutely agree, because it seems to be telegraphing the direction of the plot, particularly when it comes to Mary. That Mary is integrally important to where the show is going and what role she'll play in terms of connecting the... the I, I'm not to call them the mutant population, but sorry, that's a different, it's a different show together. Um, so yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's a good pick. Thank you. That was the best line of the episode. Now we will go to favorite character arcs and... When we're done with that, we will award the booby prize. Spencer, who's your favorite character arc of episode two? If you're going to let me pick, dude, I'm picking Amalia just because that feels like the, obvi the obvious pick. Uh, I'm going to make you pick somebody different this time around. But she has had the most... Com she is clearly the main character, it seems. I think this episode has hammered that home. She I love how the actress is playing that role. And I love the interaction she's getting with other characters. Uh, the interactions she had with Frank were delightful. They were some of the best material the show has done yet, probably. The, inter the interaction she had with Malady appear very important, and they're you know, some of the only only scenes I actually tolerated interacting with Malady. So you know, kudos. And we're getting more and more slowly appreciation on slowly about what the nature of her abilities are, and also what the nature of her past is, and how that informs her present. So that's legitimately interesting. And again, the actress sells it well. So I actually kind of like that character arc so far. Yeah, I'm gonna pick. Um... I mean, you're right, right? Amalia is our, our main character. She's our protagonist. I also think Laura Donnelly, strongest actor on the show. No yeah. one is going to accuse this show of being an Emmy darling. I have that prediction. I don't know how many episodes <laughs> we're going to get. I don't know how many seasons we're going to get, Spencer. We're not going to get a lot of Emmy nominations for this show. Might but get best costumes. We'll see. If you're going to start putting together some highlights for the Emmy folks, maybe you start doing it with Laura Donnelly because she's pretty good. Okay. Um, you gotta pick somebody different, though. It's the nature. I'm picking only somebody on different, horse. and I'm picking Augustus. Why am I picking Augustus? He's all over the damn place in this episode. He goes from I'm just I'm just waking up, having me a day, to Oh my God, might have found my wife. To Oh my God, <laughs> just had to insult her. Time for a bender. To Oh, now I'm at a sex club. To Oh, now I'm having a threesome. Augustus had himself a day. That is the perfect way of summarizing what Augustus went through there. That is a day right there, man. That that is, Some people spend a lifetime putting together that run of events. You combine that into a single 24-hour period. Kudos, sir. Augustus had a hell of a day. I don't know how he tops it. I don't know. What do you do the next day? I mean, obviously, he's going to be nur nursing a bit of a hangover. Does he Hugo it? Does he hair the dog, keep this, to keep this train running, run it back, see what happens? I don't know. I don't know if he's got it in him. But Augustus had himself a hell of a day. And he is also... Uh, I joke a little bit there, but I, he also did, because of the events of this episode, I think firmly, um, and he is firmly installed as a main character, right? Because yes. 
you, you're not just getting the fact that he is the meek little brother of Darth Lavinia. He's also the now the love interest and the forlorn love interest of one of our main characters. And now he's also the business associate of Hugo. So he's he's rounding the bases. He's going to have a lot of influence on this show going forward. And he's also Bran friggin' Stark. So let's throw that out there. That's now. true. He's Bran Stark. we got to get him north of the wall, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, <laughs> my God, he's got to be the three-eyed crow. This is what would have happened to Bran Stark if he didn't if he, if he didn't peep on two people and fall out of a tower. This would have been his future. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's got to be the he's got to be the new three-eyed crow now. That's good. That's going to be his his role. All right, so that's my favorite character arc. Who wins your booby prize? Now, I'm really excited to hear who wins your booby prize this week because your booby prize last week was very controversial. Purpose not so, just yes. among our listeners. We did get some comments about it among in our in my household. My wife listened to the episode and was very unhappy with you for picking Penance. <laughs> I, as, that, p- pissing off Sarah is something I aspire to, so I'm overjoyed to hear that. She was uh, very unhappy with you for what? picking Penance as the booby prize for your least favorite character. Uh, p- p- a, certain, a certain number of horses have passed Penance in this particular race. As much as her abilities just inherently annoy me, and I worry that she's just going to be used as a supporting develop the object that saves the plot kind of character um which i inherently find frustrating she had some good character interactions and she got to do some things on her own this episode they it wasn't much she still was just kind of vaguely hurting cats when it came to you know coordinating the event at lavinia's estate but it was something so i'll give her that and i she she got some fun lines of dialogue and a bit of characterization even as you noted if it seemed that her emotional reaction to Augustus kind of vaguely telling her off was, is it fair to call that over the top? Because it felt really over the top. It was way too much. I mean, and I don't, I just think that they're just trying to force this thing. The act. Yeah. I mean, I, I, are you really that upset because someone talks to you for 10 minutes at a, at a party and then says, oh, by the way, I got to go talk to my other friends now. I guess she is. I guess it's hard they to just, believe. It's just hard it, to believe, especially it, from that character where she seems eminently reasonable in other uh, situations, it, except when she's trying to explain electricity. She doesn't sound reasonable at all. Then she sounds like an imbecile. But like uh, every other time, they're setting up like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, two star-crossed lovers, and so they're instantaneously in love with each other kind of thing, which I also find very frustrating. But again, she doesn't get the bottom prize this time around. Based on increased exposure this time around, the character arc that I just can't even stand to watch on the screen is Malady for me. It's going with a more obvious pick, but it has gotten to the point of where I almost just want to turn off volume when she, when that character is on the screen or when scenes are involving her. That they are. It's even worse now that they've given us some backstory. They've given us some reasons to you know be invested, and I just don't care because the character. It is utterly unengaging for me, and I don't think that's going to change. Um, so, Ballady is obviously a very good pick for the Booby Prize. Uh, I'm going to flip it on you this week, Spencer. I'm going You're going to go controversial. I'm going controversial. Booby Prize for me this week is Mary. Because, uh, first off, you can't leave a man at the altar and not give him an explanation and walk and skate with that. We need to be, we as a, an audience, need to be harsher on Mary for that, too. Um, she's getting dangerously close to being damsel in distress who needs to be white knighted all the time. This character is getting dangerously close to one note. Like I have this, oh, I have the beauty, the song, I have this beauty that is unassailable, God given, and I need to be protected by everyone else. And that is what I'm starting, the vibes I'm starting to get from Mary and I'm not liking it. Even better, it, her, her, you know, her beauty in this case is a song. She is literally one note. It is. (laughs) Good work. (laughs) 
I, I agree that they have done nothing with Mariette. And it's all the more frustrating because highly people have just talked about how important she is. And it's very much tell it's very much telling rather than showing. We got one very interesting, unique scene involving her, and then we've spent an episode and a half just talking about how important it was rather than actually making it feel real. And so she almost feels more like she's a religious icon rather than she is an actual person at this point with how everybody's regarding her or how even the story's regarding her. So, yeah, I'm not particularly invested in her arc as much as I really do care about Frank Mundy so far, though. I'm not super interested in the year 2021 in Pretty Girl Who Needs Saving episode after episode after episode who's helpless. Like, pre- that, I'm a little over that storyline, so please don't give me that. Um, Wait. Let, let, let's make yeah. her a little little bit I'm, more deep than that. I'm going to warn you now, man, that she is going to be the MacGuffin. She is going to be the valuable artifact that propels the plot that people are going to be fighting over from here on out. Get used uh, to it. It's what it's going to be. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. I'm going to be disappointed in that if, that if they don't give her something else. I'm hoping we get a little bit more backstory with Mundy. Um, but if she just continues to stiff arm him and say, I'm going to talk about this later. Oh, by the way, I left you at the, I'm not, I'm going to keep beating this drum spitzer. You don't leave a man at the altar and not, and not what? tell him about it. So she's going to be my villain real quick if she doesn't have that conversation. And we got to see inside Mundy's head with respect to how he's emotionally coping with this. And the answer is he's not coping that well. No, it's this, not good. This man, <laughs> this man needs closure. It's a dark place in there. You don't want to go in Mundy's head. <laughs> this is a man who is deeply twisted between self-loathing and self-hatred and desperately not, not trying to blame or be angry at the person who did this to him. He needs this kind of closure to be able to emotionally come to terms with what happened, and he's not getting that yet, and I think they're going to delay it a long time before we do. Um, Follow-up question. Because there's at least there's several other characters that frustrate me, but there's two you've mentioned before piss you off. In, this, in the horse race, you've seen them both now in two episodes, between Hugo and Dr. Haig, which horse is winning the boot, is getting, is, you know, Running a hard second in your race for booby prize at that point. Uh, Dr. Haig. Hugo, little bit of a redemption story this this week from Hugo. Um, he almost gets in a fist fight with a guy who's like 35 years a senior at a at a <laughs> Would at have a kicked bar. his ass. Um, he uh, inexplicably shows up in a gown and makeup at a sex club. Um, you know, that's, that's a little bit more interesting than what I was getting from Hugo before Hugo, a little bit of a redemption arc from Hugo. He is not, I would not put him even in my top three of BB prize at this point. Um, cause it, it you know, when you start just, you, you know, you just start like gown open, bare chested makeup on, Hey, let like, here's the threesome is in that room kind of guy. Like you're starting to get a little interesting to me. I, I I'm, I'm going to want to see what he's doing in later scenes. It just came to be. Did you ever watch Rome back in the day? Of course I did. Great show. That is such a Mark Anthony look from Rome. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's and a good call. <laughs> it almost helps me appreciate it more just because of how awesome that character was in that show. Yeah, that's a good call. And it's, you know, look, that that places him at a level of like interesting that's a little bit above some of the what? other characters. And then he sets Augustus up with the old heave-ho into the room with the with the two ladies. That's also pretty interesting, too, because, you know, he's the, Hugo seems like the type of guy. Um, we all knew these people. We all went to college this, with these people. Um, Spencer, you might, you might know one. You might be talking to one right now where you do not get drunk <laughs> around. You don't get drunk around Hugo because you don't know what's going to happen, right? It, um, it'll be fun. You'll remember it. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, you you go, but no, yeah. but Haig still very boring. Um, you know, the fact that he's he's a stormtrooper, a uh, little bit more interesting that we have Darth <laughs> Lavinia, but you know, still still a pretty one note boring character. Well, Want to make sure we're on the same page there because Hugo's always gonna be a character that I hate because I think we're in many ways supposed to hate him and he particularly annoys me, but he's at least interesting. He's at least compelling to a certain degree. A little bit degree. more this episode, for sure, yeah. Yes. Even if he almost just feels like he exists to fulfill the HBO nudity quota. Oh, yeah. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and you know, HBO does that thing that's so funny where they always put like the, this, the, here's the things to look out for. Like <laughs> yeah. adult content. The ratings, yeah. I saw nudity pop up and I was like, whoop, getting some Hugo. All right, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're going to be shocked when we get you know, a nudity scene involving just Lavinia or something later on in the episode. Not, Hugo doesn't even appear, but the HBO is working the nudity in If we get a nudity scene that does not involve Hugo, I will be stunned. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely yeah. stunned. Okay. All right. I think that wraps up our coverage of episode two. As I mentioned, you know, thanks, everybody, for joining us. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this series, Spencer. Um, I, I think that what we saw in the first episode was disjointed complicated heart to follow they started to get the car between the lines here and i think that we're going to end up with a story that we can we can follow week by week and really have a good time doing let's end on it then what is your rating this episode compared to last so last week i gave a six and a half this week i'm going to give a i'm going to give a seven and a half i actually got to a point you know obviously when we we had been planning to do the nevers uh we had the podcast ready to go our coverage ready to go so the I was obviously watching it in part the first episode out of like I mean, we have a job to do you know professional broadcasters here Spencer mm-hmm. um, by the back half of episode two I put my notes down and said I just want to watch I'm enjoying this I just want to watch it nice so we got to that point so I'm gonna do seven and a half what about you you said famously four and a half for the first episode coming out hard initially what what's your rating a two point two you know <laughs> Spencer's yeah. done. No, I mean, it's no, it's a no, one-man no. podcast on the way out. <laughs> it, it, it was definitely an improvement. I actually legitimately enjoyed parts of this episode. I would give it. I'm going to go above average this time. I'm going to go five and a half, starting to approach even maybe a six. There, there was some legitimate good material here, even if the frustrating is clearly going to keep frustrating me. Um, I do want to shout out a comment that we got. The person who corrected me that we're supposed to call, uh, not supposed to call it, or just your name, is Penance, not Penance. So thank you for that. This person also pointed out a lot of Christ imagery in the show, which mm-hmm. um, spaceship is it across. Um, Amalia gets hit by three little dots, Trinity. Um, you know, she brought up a lot of good things. So that might be something to look out for. Uh, some of the some of the Christ uh, Christianity imagery in the show going forward to see if that continues. But uh, appreciate you leaving that comment. Uh, please, everybody, if you're listening and you want to get in the conversation with us, go to MangumTalks.com. We have upper right-hand corner. Click Contact Us. Put your comment. It will come straight to me. I will curate them and tell Spencer about them. Um, but we do. I will read every comment that we get in unless we just get absolutely bombarded. I'm committed to doing that because I appreciate listener feedback and I appreciate our listeners. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I enjoyed doing this episode with you, Spencer. We will be back next week for Episode 3 of the Nevers here on the Nevers War Podcast. Looking forward to it. 